0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the season and series debut of Grappling with Canada. For those of you who are familiar with my work from the Six Sided Podcast. And for those of you getting to know me for the very first time, I am your host, The Taxman. This month's episode will be covering Canadian wrestling icon and legend, Stu Hart. Now there's no way that I'd be able to cover the topic of Stu Hart simply on my own, so I've brought some very special guests along with me for the ride today. Uh, You're going to hear about the early life and times of Stu Hart with wrestling, oh goddamn, she does everything from writing, blogging, uh, YouTube, Twitch, whatever, you can find her everywhere, Uh, the very beautiful and talented Ashley Rose Nova. To give us the promoter's perspective side of the program, I have with me Canadian wrestling elites, very own Hotshot Danny Duggan. And the man who wrote legitimately the Bible on Stampede Wrestling, a man who spent an exorbitant amount of time with the Hart family and really really gives an important and in-depth peek behind the curtain of what was transpiring with the hearts with Stampede Wrestling, like I said, the man who wrote the Bible on Stampede Wrestling, Mr. Heath McCoy. In addition to the fantastic guests that I've rounded out for today's program, I'm also going to be including some classic audio uh, from CBC, from Stampede Wrestling, and some classic interviews itself. And we are going to get into all of that on the other side of this.
1: Hey everybody, Trent from Total Nonstop Impact, Impact Talk for Impact fans, the number one Impact Wrestling podcast and discussion show on the planet. Tuesday night, post shows after Impact and Access TV. Thursday night, TNA Asylum Throwbacks. Sunday night, Impact Plus Weekly Explosion Talk and Open Forum. All the pay-per-views in between and the breaking news. Whatever's happening in Impact Wrestling, we're covering it. Join us at Total Nonstop Impact at twitch.tv slash totalnonstopimpact, youtube.com totalnonstopimpact,
0: and all major podcast platforms. A few housekeeping notes before we jump into the program today. You can connect with us online tinyurl.com slash grappling with Canada. Uh, you can also use YouTube if that's your cup of tea, youtube.com slash C slash six sided podcast or that wonderful YouTube search bar, grappling with Canada. You can also find us on Twitter at six underscore podcast. Now, obviously, the Twitter handle and the YouTube directory, those are holdovers from the previous program, but still, all three ways are tremendous ways to connect with me uh, and this show. Now, of note, on tinyurl.com slash grapplingwithcanada, you're going to find links to our Amazon store, which, when you use it, does not add one single cent to your purchasing order. I just want to make that implicitly clear in case anybody is confused by it. It doesn't add anything to your purchase price. But what it does do is provide a very small kickback to the show to help us keep the lights on. I hate that term, but it just it comes to mind right now, so I'm going to go with it. Now, also at tinyurl.com slash grapplingwithcandy, you're going to find a link specifically to Heath McCoy's book. Now, if after listening to him on the program, if you already have the book, by the way, congratulations. You you own an incredible read. If after listening to him on the program, I would strongly, strongly encourage you, not just for the Amazon link referral. I don't give a shit about that. What I do care about is this book is, like I said, the Bible, the be and all, all of Stampede Wrestling, in my opinion. And a, a really tremendous look at the family dynamic of the Hart family. You'd be hard-pressed to find anything that will ever be better than it. I, I, I'm not just saying that because he's on the program. It's honestly such a tremendous read. I cannot put it over enough. Go out after you hear this program and and get this book. And please use the uh, the Amazon link that's on tinyurl.com. Slash grappling with Canada. So, without further ado, we're going to jump into the program. Now, before I bring my first guest on, the previously mentioned Ashley Rose Nova, I'm going to play a clip from the CBC from 1990. Now, this is a piece done on Stampede Wrestling by Bruce Husley. In it, you're going to hear the voices of the aforementioned Bruce Husley. You're also going to hear Stu Hart, the voice of Stampede Wrestling, Ed Whalen. And Bret Hart. So enjoy this audio. And on the other side, we're going to get to our interview with Ashley
2: Rose Nova. Control the wrestling in mm-hmm. New York. Stu Hart, so,
3: Hart, Hart has been in the fight game for more than 40 years and knows everyone who was anyone.
2: And this is uh, Jack Dempsey. Of course, he was a, a wonderful person, a great
3: gentleman. And Hart is the heart and soul of wrestling in Calgary. For 30 years, his syndicated television show, Stampede Wrestling beamed the exploits of his grapplers all over the globe, but no more. Stu Hart is packing it in to travel with his wife.
2: If it wasn't for that, I suppose I'd stay in wrestling until I died, but uh, I, if I'm going to take her on any trips, I can't do it after I'm. they pull the curtain down on me.
3: Hart's legacy is the phenomenally successful wrestling show. Seen in more than 50 countries, Stampede Wrestling put Calgary into the forefront of professional wrestling. And the touring production became a prairie happening.
2: Our Stampede Wrestling uh, speaks for itself. Over the years, we've filled every building in here for uh, many, many years. And uh, when we go into a big, uh, w- a big uh, event, we go under the crowd. We'd sell it out.
3: Stampede Wrestling made Ed Whelan a household name from Alberta to Argentina. His tongue-in-cheek approach changed the way people looked at pro wrestling. He says it's the success of the huge World Wrestling Federation, with its super hype, that has killed some shows like Stampede Wrestling.
4: There is no question that WWF has become virtually uh, monopolistic, and this giant is trampling a lot of local promotions. A lot of them have bit the dust in the last few years.
3: Ironically, the World Wrestling Federation owes a lot to Stampede Wrestling dozens of its stars developed their toeholds and atomic drops in the stampede ring. Hart's son Brett is one of them and he says wrestling in Calgary helped him make the big time.
5: When you came to Calgary if you had to you had to learn with the hardest wrestling crowd because this, this crowd Van and now they, they sit and they watch they don't cheer unless it's really great wrestling and they just sit and they watch and once you get them up and you can actually get that crowd to cheer like just to explode that's when you know that you're uh, good enough to go anywhere
3: it was two weeks ago when wrestlers stepped into this ring for the last time and like Bret Hart says tried to blow the roof off this old pavilion there's a lot of people out there a lot of promoters who will try to step into the void try to be the next Stu Hart but it's clear that stampede wrestling is now part of Calgary history Bruce Leslie CBC News Calgary all right I'm very
0: happy to be joined this evening by the multi-talented, multi-faceted writer, historian, whatever you want to call her. She's very active on Twitter and very active in the wrestling category of everything you could possibly think of. Uh, YouTube, on different videos, on different people's podcasts, and joining me on this one tonight, the very fantastic Ashley Rose. Ashley, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for
6: having me. Yeah, it's Ashley Rose over here. Um, yep, I'm in, I guess I, you could say I have my hands in a bunch of different parts of pro wrestling or just in a bunch of different pots.
0: So, um, um, I kind of lost track at, uh, about 10 or so you have like, you have quite the, uh, quite the library of, of literature that you've written over the years for uh, professional wrestling.
6: Yeah. You know, recently, uh, you know, I'm going to be honest, you know, I, t- I took, you know, I took a small break from writing uh, just anything pro wrestling in general. Um, a small break just to basically see, you know, was there anything else I could contribute? Uh, when I sat down, I actually realized I, I've written quite a lot in close to six years. So, yeah, I, I have everything from, I guess, Japanese strong style, you know, puro Lucha Libre, at tag team wrestling, uh, Canadian wrestling, uh, UK—I guess I'm pretty much everywhere.
0: So it's it's funny because going through, and I've been following you on Twitter for oh god, I don't know the length of probably the amount of time that I've been on there, anyways. And uh, I had always was under the impression that you were from Winnipeg because a lot of your um, <laughs> a, a lot of your articles are written on my. Uh, high school alumni Kenny Omega, and, and we'll get into that off air. I don't want to give everything away on the podcast in episode one, but oh, uh, God, really, yeah, yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna get <laughs> into a this. That's world. that's a, that's an interesting conversation. So we're gonna have that off air. But uh, so I I was, hey,
6: do, you, do you know Mecca too, dude? You
0: know... Well, you know, we'll uh, we'll 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 have a we'll have a nice conversation in a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so it, it it's funny. I just. I I saw your articles, and and a lot of it was Winnipeg-centric, so I just, in my mind, I was like, oh, she must be from Winnipeg, so, and and not just Winnipeg, but I should say that you've written a lot of articles about Canadian content, Uh, obviously, as well with uh, a lot of your Impact Wrestling uh, articles, there's massive connections between Impact Wrestling and Winnipeg in general, you know, not just with the the now addition of Kenny Omega, but Don Callis, uh, you have the Asper family. All the big backers are all from Winnipeg as well. So, I had wrongly assumed that you were. So I messaged you about the the program, and I said, "Hey, fellow winnipeg <laughs> In the in the beginning of the of the message, you're like, "Hey, I like to be a part of it, but just one problem: I'm not from Winnipeg." <laughs> no, it's okay.
6: You know, uh, <laughs> you know, I just. I, I, I have a lot of friends that are Canadian and, uh, I guess, you know, <laughs> in Winnipeg. Uh, I guess I got, you could say I have a strong foundation there. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm not physically there right now due to, uh, you know, the circumstances of the virus and everything going on in the world right now. But I have a strong foundation.
0: There. <laughs> well, I'm very happy to be adding to it. I will say that much.
6: Yeah, I I had no idea. What is the prize? Yeah, Uh, yeah. No, I was. um, I'm actually. I was born in South Texas. I've traveled a lot. I've moved a lot. So, yeah, it's no one exactly knows. uh, uh, You know, when when they asked me to come on shows like the when I did the Impact review, they they assumed I was in the UK, and I was like, no, I just (laughs) I I contribute to the UK a lot because you know I just. I love pro wrestling in general. It does not matter where in the world. If you enjoy it, if it makes you happy, if it's something that you like, then I'm all for it. And if it's something I'm unaware about or I do not know about, then, you know, I, I want to interact and I, I want to know. I want to learn. So I always have an open mind when it comes to pro wrestling um, as entertainment, as sport. I truly believe it does need to be universally entertaining.
0: Yeah, you'll get no argument with me uh on that one. And uh shout out as well to our good friends at uh, We Talk Impact. That's a tremendous group of people and they're really really good friends of mine. So, I did catch you on that program. That was that looked like a lot of fun.
6: Yeah, I was having some like actual connection issues just because um where I'm at the weather kept going in and out and it actually my power went out and it messed up my router, so I had that replaced and you know, I'm pretty solid now, but we got a good, you know, amount of
0: time, you know, in. Speaking of a uh, good amount of time, we'll uh, we'll dive into uh, the topic du jour, if you will, and that is following the uh, life and career of Stu Hart. So uh, we'll give everybody a quick uh, overview of his early life, and we'll, uh, we'll be getting into some interesting tidbits as well. So uh, once again, very happy to have you on the program. Yeah,
6: I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I'm excited. You know, this is... I'm just Like I said, I'm just happy to, to be around
0: and to contribute. Alright, so, uh, Stu Hart was born in Saskatoon in 1915. Now, that in itself is kind of funny, because everybody just... Stu Hart and Calgary. Those, those are always the two synonymous uh, statements, if you will, but... I'll, I'll, and for anybody, for international listeners, because there are many of you out there, Saskatchewan uh, is basically the next door neighbor, if you will, to Alberta and Saskatchewan or Saskatoon, sorry, and Calgary are separated by mm, 700 kilometers or so. So just, uh-huh. it, it it's a long distance apart, but in the context of Canada, and we'll hear that later on in the program, not very far at all. Uh, he was born to Edward and Elizabeth Hart. Uh, he's mainly of Scott and Irish descent from his father's side, but also had Scottish and English ancestry from his mother. So that might be worth some of that, uh, stew heart you know rough and grumble uh exterior comes from uh having having a, a background like that is uh, certainly grounds for a little bit of volatility i'm sure
6: yeah absolutely you know it, i think you know coming from that type of background i think it really shapes a young man into what they you know any possibilities of what could happen in the future or you know what they can become um I think after some time, if I'm not mistaken, uh, after that is when they eventually moved over to Alberta. Correct?
0: Yeah. So it's it's kind of a weird situation, uh, and I I speak a little bit about this later on in the program uh, with another one of our guests. But essentially, they were born as poor as like the poorest of poor. They essentially lived in a, in a tent on some property that his father did or didn't have claim to. It kind of depends who you were talking to at the time. And I get into this, like I said, uh, later on with one of my other podcast hosts. But yeah, they were... Just imagine, and I'm not sure how cold the winters get where you are, but on the Canadian prairies, a, a cold winter can easily hit wind chills of minus 35, minus 40, minus 50 degrees Celsius, which is... Was 45 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit minus, so pretty, pretty cold to be living in a tent.
6: Yeah, that's that's certainly you know colder than where I am currently because I'm a you know further south of America as far as the states. So, I mean, anything pretty much 60 degrees is pretty cold in this area. So, up there, you know, that's that that's incredibly rough uh, i can I, you know i can't imagine what it must have been like for a young man or just anyone in general to essentially you know just live um you know like you said in, in pretty much just a tent and on a piece of land where there's no heat it you know it's it, it's you know i think that really um as a child, probably shaped his exterior as well as his interior as a person and being incredibly tough.
0: So they do end up moving to uh, to Edmonton uh, in about, about 1928. Um, and so obviously we're moving into the Dirty 30s, the Great Depression. Now, when they had moved into Edmonton, they were coming into the very start of the Great Depression. But when you're coming from living in a tent... Uh, his family was really not affected by the Great Depression as much as um, you know a lot of the other economic uh, hits that people were taking at that time. So it's it's almost funny, right? you not funny, haha, but funny to think like, okay, we're leaving this place, we're gonna go to a better place, uh, we're gonna go somewhere where there's more opportunity, better family situation and boom, the Great Depression hits right and you're, and you're almost right back to square one. but now this time, a little bit more set up for for a life of success, if you will. Uh, not living in a tent, I will say.
6: Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, as far as the Great Depression, I mean, it must have been, you know, some type of, I wouldn't say an upgrade, but it must have been maybe a little bit of a relief to them just to have more than what they eventually had, even though during that time economically, you know, It was a great, you know, there was such a struggle at that time period. Um, It must have provided them maybe with some type of relief, regardless of, you know, the time period and the circumstances.
0: I know that they had spent, they meaning uh, Stu and his siblings, had spent some time in and out of Salvation Army uh, housings. Uh, I know Stu's father was arrested around that time for, I believe it was back taxes as it Related to the the land dispute that he had back in Saskatoon, and then unfortunately his mother had passed away. So you're talking about like, okay, you grew up in a tent, right? Yeah, you moved to to Edmonton, this city of you know financial betterment or whatever. That goes to shit. Now your father's in jail. Now your mother passes away. Just how much? How much? unfortunate incidents can you pack into one young man's life, and this is you know, b- before 1930 it- it's incredible
6: yeah, it's, I mean it's just, it's, I mean this is around yeah, I, 19, before 1930 like 1928, somewhere around there um, it's, it's you know, I'm you know, going back and, you know rereading, you know, a lot of stuff, you know, as far as Stu's, you know past or previous history, it's, you know, it really does surprise me and amaze me. And it's almost, this is the type of story, I mean, you would think it was, it was literally written for a movie, you know, it's, it's just so dramatic and unfortunate, you know, to be that young and to have basically all this... Unfortunate events occur. Uh, you you wouldn't think it was real. You know, it's almost like like I said. You know, it's almost pretty much written like if it's a movie or a film. But no, this this actually happened.
0: It's funny. The I want to circle back to your comment. It's almost like a film because there's some interesting things that happened in his life which do happen in a film, and we're gonna we're gonna touch on that a little bit later. Uh, in terms of you know, Stu having a real rough childhood, doesn't give up. He ends up actually starting to attend, and this is where, this is the earliest that I can find that he started learning wrestling. So he was attending amateur wrestling classes, uh, in the YMCA in Edmonton in 19, uh, 21. And from then started, started learning the uh, art form of wrestling. And it was said that he was like, like a fish to water. He just, he got everything Uh, By the age of 15, he won the Edmonton City Championship in the middleweight class and the Alberta Provincial Championship later that same year. Uh, He continued to train and improve in his his abilities, and by 1937, he was a Dominion Welterweight Champion. Uh, So, just because, again, our international listeners may not know, Canada wasn't actually a country back in 1937. Canada actually didn't become a country till. Or you know, completely diverse of the uh, of the British Crown till 1985, I believe. So we're talking about 1937. Yes, he's in Canada, the Dominion of Canada, not the country of Canada. Very important uh, thing to keep in mind as we move forward here. Uh, so in 1938, he did actually qualify for the British Empire Games in Australia, but he wasn't able to go because. He didn't have any money, obviously, you know, the, the economic d- uh, dissuasions, if you will, that we had talked about earlier, they just keep piling on, piling on. He finally has a chance to go somewhere, and he can't because of the uh, economic depression, and especially, too, there was a severe lack of funding from the Canadian government uh, because at that time they were kind of gearing up for World War Two, and we're going to get into that in a little bit as well. Uh, his amateur career did peak in in 1940 when he won the Dominion Amateur Wrestling Championship in the light heavyweight category, and he also would have competed at the Summer Olympics in uh, Helsinki in uh, 1940. But that big thing that I just talked about, World War II, that kind of kiboshed the Olympics uh, in that region. So horrible for him, right? Again, just it's funny you 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 talk about like we've we've kind of hammered on how many you know, how many things can go wrong for one guy in a very short amount of time. We're talking, you know, 25 years. It's incredible. Like he, he has a chance to make a better life for himself. Can't do that. Then he has a chance to, uh, make a name for himself in wrestling. Can't do that. Then he has a chance to go to the Olympics and he can't do that. He's goddamn snake bit.
6: Yeah. It's just, you know, it's blow after blow after blow. Um, unfortunately for Stu at this time period, um, you know, but yeah, he was always, like, a phenomenal grappler. I mean, that's pretty much what he's known for, and it's it just always came natural for him. But, yeah, it's always, and you know, it's just unfortunate that he had all these opportunities, but due to, you know, what was going on in the economy, uh, then, you know, there's a war, World War II. Uh, you know, how much more can... A young man take uh, as far as you know. Either I can Im- imagine it might have been you know a great disappointment to him. Um, I mean, it's just it's it's like no matter it, it's almost like he takes you know one step forward, it's like three steps back.
0: Oh my god, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's and it's not just like three baby steps either. It's like three gigantic like. You, uh, just it's incredible and it, what strength of character to persevere as well through through it all it's really a testament to to Stu Hart's character I would say uh-huh. so I'm gonna read this little excerpt because it's really also going to go into another guest that I have later on in this program and the uh the dangers of driving in Canada in uh in winter on the, our now infamous uh, highways so on Christmas Eve, 1941, Hart was almost killed in a bicycle accident, which broke both his elbows and thumbs and hurt his back. Uh, the injuries risk ending his athletic career. It happened while he was on the way to uh, visit his father to celebrate Christmas with the family, when a fire truck drove behind him and forced him to swerve to the side of the road, where he was hit by another car, propelling him 30 feet forward onto the road, and scraping off a large portion of his skin on the process. So where. W- we. This just is a fucking laundry list that just keeps adding of unfortunate incidents for Stu Hart. Uh, so during he's the holidays during the, the holidays. Yeah, lives. he's he's yeah going and we're coming up on Christmas now. It's like oh my god, right? Again, this could be in a movie and you wouldn't believe it, but this is real life. So, ah, oh, it's it's insane. So he spent several months in uh, the Royal Alexandria Hospital in Edmonton Recovering. In the springtime when he was still in the hospital, he was visited by Al Oming. And now that's a very important name that we're going to get to later on, uh, both with you and with one of my guests later on in the program. Uh, He was a young neighbor who was drafted into the Royal Canadian Navy for World War II. And that was really what stuck with Stu and made him want to enlist uh, into the Navy for World War II.
6: Yeah, I mean, he went to the Navy for World War II. Uh, I mean, it wasn't until... Wait, hold on. Um, during that time, wasn't he also wrestling as well?
0: He was wrestling, so...
6: At the same time? Yeah, so uh, yeah.
0: this is where it gets funny, and this is where I wanted to bring up your point about the movie aspect of it. So I'm sure you've seen all the Marvel movies, right?
6: Just about,
0: except for like the last Avengers. Okay, so uh, you've seen the uh, the first Captain America movie, right? Where he, I love this. yeah, so he gets he gets uh, enhanced, if you will, but he's he's like a figurehead for the army, right? They don't let him fight. He's just like a rah rah guy, and he's doing all these these Shows rallies and- for the troops and whatever. Well, that that was legitimately the real life situation that Stu Hart was in. Uh, they put him in the Navy, or he was enlisted in the Navy, they saw his athletic background, they made, named him Director of Athletics, then in '43, in he was put in for a transfer um, out east in Canada to Nova Scotia, now that's where essentially every Navy serviceman would leave to go fight in the Atlantic, everybody left through Nova Scotia. So they had, the, they being the Navy, had him wrestling for the troops, just like you saw Captain America entertaining the troops that were leaving overseas or were currently overseas, you know, fighting the Germans. There was Stu Hart. That was his actual life role in World War II. It was incredible.
6: So what you're saying is basically Stu Hart's like Captain America.
0: Yeah, he's he's like, goddamn. Just, just call him Captain Canada. Like, for... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it just I I was I'm reading his his backstory and I'm like, it's one of those things where you're like, I've I've seen this before. Yeah, like I did I not see this and, and you put two and two together. It's it's just mind boggling.
6: Still one of my favorite Marvel films. First Captain America.
0: It's a tremendous movie, obviously based uh, on Stewart. <laughs> basically, Captain America was based off of
6: Stewart. Yeah.
0: So, so during his uh, during his stay in, or stay, if, I know that's not the correct term, to, but his tour of duty in World War II, he was organizing money relief efforts for the war effort. He was doing all these things, but he was he kept trying to get out of the navy. Kept trying to get out, but. Every time they try to get out, they pull him back in. So he actually never got his release out of the Navy until 1946. Now, obviously, World War II ended in uh, 1944, so two years after he's he's still in the Navy, they finally give him his release, and then he's able to uh, kick off his professional wrestling career. Uh-huh. And yes. that was the time. Sorry, go ahead.
6: Oh no, no, uh, you're probably gonna say
0: what I'm gonna say. Oh, so. I, so Obviously, he leaves the Navy. Uh, this is the time where, again, he runs into Al Oming, his friend from the hospital, who, or his neighbor, I should say, who got him enlisted in the Navy. He has the idea, hey, let's uh, let's jump down to the States and uh, let's try out this wrestling thing. So he ends up going to the New York Territory.
6: Yep, like I said, you were just getting to what I was about to say. And... Um, first, should should I tell the, our you know your listeners as far as who Al is?
0: Yes, please.
6: Okay, Al is also the co-founder uh, of Stampede Wrestling, so there's a a little note there. So that's why Al is essentially important as far as the story goes, or you know, facts, not necessarily story, but facts.
0: If we're keeping in line with the with the Captain America theory, Al would be his Bucky.
6: There
7: you
6: go. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the more you read about the story, you know, the actual truth of that, it, it is.
0: <laughs> yeah, the deeper you go, the, the more similarities you come across, which is incredible. Uh, so, obviously, in uh, the New York Territory, he received training from uh, Tootsmont and debuted in New York City. Now, if you're going to debut in wrestling in any city in North America... New York's, uh, that's a pretty good place to cut your teeth.
6: Yeah, that was um, pretty much the most known place to go at the time, at least during, you know, the 1940s would be New York. Um, If you had a debut there, you know, you were you were going places, you were either considered a star or an attraction for people, or you were considered extremely talented, as far as being a pro wrestler. You know, there's a lot of I can't really think of it off the top of my head, but there are a lot of people during that time that did debut in New York, or at least had a lot of influence in that area.
0: Oh, it's a, the, the amount of, of talent that you. Either, either, and this is back in the in the territory s- system days. Like this is, uh, uh, would it have been Continental at that time? I'm trying to think. It wouldn't have been the WWF yet at, in 1947. I don't believe. But it might have been continental. But anyways, so this is back in the territory system. This is the era where you have, like, the NWA is, they have their territories. You have uh, the Dallas offices are operating. You have um, Knoxville's running. You have the Fuller's running. It's just it, completely different than how everything is nowadays. But yes, again, New York was was the hub, right? So he's wrestling the, the who's who of wrestling at the time. He's wrestling Luthez. He's wrestling Frank Sexton. He's wrestling uh, Sander Kovacs. He's wrestling uh, wrestling um, uh, Laura James Blears. Actually, he had a tag team uh, with him as well. Uh, it just it, it's crazy. Like this this kid who comes from nothing in a in a no name town in Saskatchewan is now all of a sudden. Like a big a, a, a draw, a big time draw in in the biggest wrestling market in North America.
6: Yeah, and also you know apparently according to our history records and if you you know saw any old photos of Stu, he was described as tall, dark, and handsome, and they could build, uh, basically make a bill out of that you know, during the time.
0: Yeah, n- nothing says baby face like tall, dark, and handsome, right? If you're if you're gonna win, if you're gonna win ladies over, that's probably how you're doing it. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. think I don't think Stu wrestling in a mask was ever uh, was ever part you of the equation. Not. No, 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 no. <laughs> and actually, he was he was uh, ribbed quite a bit in New York for being the pretty boy, pretty boy. Sorry, listen to me talk. <laughs> but uh, that ended pretty quickly when he started shooting on some people. And there's there's Stories that I've read of uh, of other wrestlers in that territory, Lou thez being one of them, talking about that, yeah, you may not want to be fucking with Stu hard, He's the tough guy. Oh, yeah, let's try him. Yeah, well, it didn't work out very well for them because Stu's uh, reputation for stretching people in the dungeon, well, a lot of that came from his time in the New York Territory. Yeah,
6: absolutely, you know, I, and I mean, come on, you know, it's... I, I wouldn't have taken Stu lightly or especially if, you know, they knew his background or knew anything about him, you know, uh, you know, I'm, you know, Stu was a nice man, but you know, you, you didn't want to cross him. That was just one man you did not want to cross.
0: And obviously at this point, time in New York that's when he meets his wife Helen uh they only were dating for a year and a half i believe is is from what i can tell from records but uh yeah they got married obviously they go on to have 12 kids like i got 2 kids my god i can't couldn't imagine having 12 kids
6: my stepmother's actually one out of 12 really yeah my stepmother yeah she's uh, one <laughs> out of 12 and her dad you know uh what one of my grandfathers used to just say it was just cause things were cheaper by the dozen at the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you get a lot of uh, a lot of life out of clothes, that's for sure.
6: I and you know, the, the crazy thing is they only had like a they only had like a three bedroom house, three or four bedroom house.
0: What do they sleep on each other?
6: You know, I to this day I still question it. <laughs> I, I honestly do. I never like my stepmother, like she like Explained how it worked to me because like a couple of my aunts were older and like they moved out or like one of my uncles was older and he moved out, but still that still leaves like six of them. So I'm still not exactly sure how that worked. And you know my mother's one out of six children.
0: Jeez, I so, can I can only imagine.
6: Yeah, I, I I can't I can't imagine either. I'm still. A little baffled by it all and still try. to, <laughs> there's just things you just don't question after a certain point. Yeah, anymore. there's,
0: there gets to a point where you just kind of accept it and, uh, and move forward if you will.
6: Yeah. And, you know, as for me, I only have like one other sibling and the other ones are by marriage, you know, like as far as like, um, when my mother got remarried, you know, I have a stepbrother. I actually have two but I mean I'm not close to any of them so like you know I'm not my central like family you know that I'm from like uh, there's not a lot of us it's just me and one other like sibling
0: so Mm -hmm.
6: I I can't imagine like six or twelve and then even during that time I mean I don't know if maybe economically it was achievable but still to me that that just seems like a lot of stress. Nothing against you to know, large families, but I just, I, I, I still, it, it boggles my mind, like how that can even work in a small home or economically. I, I just, I just, you know, I just can't imagine and especially, you know, like what 12, 12 hearts, like that's a yeah. lot. <laughs>
0: yeah. Like, uh, you know, to those who can, all the power to you. I, uh, I am not one, one of those, though. Absolutely, sure. <laughs> <You> no, <know>, absolutely. <laughs>
6: all the power to you. But...
0: so while, uh, and we're you know we're keeping with his time in the New York territory, and we're kind of winding it down as well. Uh, this is where he really started focusing on that submission style and technical style of wrestling. So, which is funny because back then that's not what. Got the attention of the writers. What got the attention of the of the the Dave Meltzers of that time was a lot of the you know it's the flashy performers. It was the not not much of the top rope stuff, but a lot of the innovative wrestling rather than the British or the Canadian style of that real mat wrestling, the real technical style. Uh, Personally, that's my favorite style of wrestling. But it's funny to me that he's so popular with with the fans, and, and the women especially, and he, he and he's a big draw, and he's working with all these big names, but he doesn't get the recognition from the printed media. And to, and to me, it would almost seem like that would be the opposite nowadays, right? A guy who is technically proficient, and somebody who is a star, and connects with the fans, that would almost be... Oh, goddamn! that'd be the guy you would see at, at, as number one on, on the PWI every year, right?
6: I mean, it, it varies. You know, there's a, a lot of performers that I can say have a lot of charisma, but only do technical style wrestling. Uh, you know, for me, the way I range performances, it's I pay attention to the moveset. I pay attention if you have any type of chemistry with your opponent, or if you have the ability to work with anyone. I also pay attention to how well you are over with your fans, or just how easy it is for you to win over any audience in any country. That's how I view things. Um, As far as other writers, I mean... Some people base it off of just charisma and they would vote um, whoever, you know, for the top, uh, you know, 100 or top 50, depending on what it is. I, so I, I tend to view everything, but a lot of it has to do with, I guess, you know, how over you can get.
0: So and I don't want to, because you're the perfect person to ask this, when you're writing an article on somebody, regardless if it's Stu or whoever it is, do you take things into ac- or would you take things into account, like, okay, they came from blank, now they're here, they've been established for X amount of years, they've done this, this, this. Does that enter into your equation, or is it, or, is it easier or maybe an easier read for, for the readers. If it's very, if everything is, um, very now centric, if it's like, okay, this is what he, this person is doing today. And like, this was their match, you know, two weeks ago. Like what, what's an, what's a, what's an easier article to write versus what article do you prefer to write?
6: Um, the easiest article to write is definitely results, like results to a match, uh, that's my opinion because it takes less time and effort. But as far as the way I like to write things, if I automatically assume every time I write a new article, regardless if I have, you know, devoted readers, which I do, you know, it doesn't matter what platform I'm at, they will read it. Um, you have your devoted fans of, you know, whoever it is I'm writing about that will read it. That's that's a given. But I always take in consideration that there is someone. That knows absolutely nothing about that performer or that match or the background history of what's leading up to it. So, that is kind of how I go into an article like that. I always give some type of background history that is essential to what is going on to that current moment. Um, like I said, I, I assume. I always go through the assumption that there is someone, at least one person that wants to know more about that performer or wants to know something extra, not just what's happening today or what's happening tomorrow or last week or this month.
0: I suppose I, I just, I'm almost having a hard time to wrap my head around. Okay. This guy's a star. He's putting on tremendous matches with top tier talent, but we're not going to write about him. And Oh, by the way, He's a he's a big-time fan favorite, but let's not write about him. It just, I don't know, it just seems like such a missed opportunity, but maybe that just is piling yes. on. Maybe that's yeah, just... And it, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, please I, I interrupt agree. me any time at all. <laughs> please just go right ahead. No, no, it
6: is. It absolutely is. And I also think maybe... Maybe at the time it also had to do with maybe, you know how many people actually wanted to write about pro wrestling at the time as well. Um, Or, you know, they just, you know, write about the main event or the results Um, that could also be it as well. Uh, You know, I, I would really have to look into that time period and see what type of articles were printed as far as like, you know, in the paper or any type of newsletter at the time.
0: Sup- I I suppose that's true too, because i'm I'm trying to think when the boom period would have started for the New York territory I wanna say it was like the early fifties, so maybe he was a couple of years too early for for that kind of recognition, if you will
6: yeah, it's a possibility i I mean you know, like I said, it really just it could just be how many people were actually writing long-form articles or they could have just been writing results and documenting, you know, you know, heart faced so-and-so or heart and -and so-and-so faced, you know, X amount of people or this is what happened or this is what equaled the final pinfall or the submission or anything like that. I mean, we, we still have that today going on where it's not really a detailed, article but it's more or less just very like okay so and so pins to uh, you know so and so for a three count uh
0: very superficial
6: yeah very quick and to the point you know so it's a possibility that could have happened at the time i could be wrong uh i never stated i could be right about that but that's just my assumption and uh, i'm just gonna leave it aside because i mean that's the only thing i could really think of
0: well obviously we're just we're we're Putting you to the post here, uh, your word is a hundred percent, hundred percent what happened there. Oh, really? Well, yeah. Must be a, I, now, I must, should... hey, must be now. <laughs> <laughs> must be. Oh. So I suppose as we kind of wind down this this segment of the program, I'd like to just ask a couple of questions uh, first, because you're obviously from America and you kind of been all over the map, like you said, moving from Texas to where you are now. What do you view? the legacy of Stu Hart from an American wrestling fan's point of view?
6: Well, I feel that as far as what Stu has brought to pro wrestling, um, it is important. It is historical. It is beyond legendary. But most of all, to any student out there of the art form of you know pro wrestling or any fan, to me the importance of you know Stu or the hearts or just any other legacy is the fundamentals that they provided all of us when it comes to technical wrestling yes so fundamentals
0: i always i find it interesting um you know i've asked a few of the guests uh, that you're going to hear later on in the program you know what their thoughts were it, and it's I have a promoter on the program and he talks about, you know, the promotion kind of aspects that Stu Hart brought to the table and that people can take from today. I have a journalist on the program later and he, but he spent a lot of time with the Hart family. So I asked him the same question and he talks about Stu Hart, the man in himself, like what, what he meant to him. And then it's interesting to hear from you, like, the, the writer who writes articles and you write tremendous articles about different wrestlers and, and you know where they come from, how they get into whatever. And that the fact that you would focus on like the technicals and the fundamentals and, and just, you know, the, the bell to bell, if you will, that that's what you would bring up is just, to me, it's, it's so interesting that so many people can take so many different facets from Stu Hart, but still in their, still in their, you know, frame of reference, if you will. Uh, To me, it's just super interesting.
6: Yeah, you know, to me, fundamentals have always been important. Um, As far as, you know, like I said, I've written about so many different types of wrestling. And, you know, I, I kind of sit in awe in almost of, like, how many years it's been. And, and I haven't been around really as long as, like, you know, Fightful or, or Dave Meltzer or anything like that. But the most important thing to me is fundamentals. It's always been fundamentals uh, your ability in the ring, your ability to connect with your audience. The story you can tell is always important to me. Um, any type of in-ring psychology, you know, those are. And how much, how much it actually means to you? If I can believe that you have a lot of heart and, and passion and and your style of wrestling, then then you've won me over. Yes. You. And I think that's what a lot of people I wish uh, could focus on maybe a little bit more. But, you know, other things are, are important too as far as like, you know, Stu Hart, the promoter, you know, um, what he what type of training he provided to wrestling, you know, pupils or, or his family. And, you know, and and a lot of those people, the majority of them, ended up very successful with with, you know, his training as far as what he could provide. But to me, well, when I think of Stu Hart, I think of fundamentals and technical wrestling.
0: Very well said, I must say. Very well said. Um, before we let you go uh, for the evening, uh, where can uh, everybody find yourself and uh, where your articles can be found?
6: Okay. Well, I am on TWM News. Uh, That's, you know, in the UK, twm.news. You can find me on social media, uh, Instagram, Twitter, it doesn't matter. I I pretty much talk to whoever. And that's A-Rose, C-P-E, that's Charlie Papa Echo. And in there, if you go to my bio, you can click my link tree, and there is a link to almost every single platform I've ever written for and contributed to. So pretty simple.
0: And you have a pro wrestling T's store as well, right? Yep, it's
6: in there as well.
0: Perfect. So everybody, I will I will ask you to uh, take your, that time, and I'm going to be linking all this to uh, to the individual set of tweets, and, and you'll be on the website as well as we kind of launch everything. So uh, everybody can uh, go give Ashley a follow and uh, go see what she's been cooking up because I've read a lot of your stuff. It's really really well done, and and everybody would be would be very. Uh, hard-pressed to find somebody who's a, a, more passionate and more knowledgeable about, uh, about the content that they write for than you. Oh,
6: well, thank you. You know, I, I tried my best. You know, I don't certainly think I'm the best writer in the world. You
0: no, know, put yourself a... over! It's wrestling! <laughs> but, yeah, you know, I should. Uh, <laughs> but,
6: but I don't. I'm pretty, I'm pretty humble, you know. <laughs> I'm pretty thankful and grateful. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, like I said, you know, I had taken, you know, a few months off to really think if I was going to, you know, continue writing. Uh, but if anything, I'm very grateful for everything I have contributed, you know, especially to Canadian wrestling, because a, a lot of people don't know this, but I, you know, I learned this, that a lot of fundamentals from Canadian wrestling actually extends out into the world of pro wrestling you would would be surprised, like, you know, like Australia and the UK, you know, and and certainly America, you know, from what we're talking about.
0: And that's why I wanted to get your point of view as well, right? Like, being an American journalist, you're going to have a very different viewpoint than I would sitting in Winnipeg or than any of my other guests would in various parts of the country. So, again, I I always want to frame all of our conversations on this program, not just to the Canadian audience, but to the international audience, because wrestling is not just one country. It's not just one region. It's not just one territory. This is, uh, this is the tendrils of not just Stu Hart, but Canadian wrestling in general go all over the world and influence so many different people and styles and, and, and cultures and everything. It's, it's, Really, really, it's, it's an incredible feat.
6: Yeah, like I said, you know, people would be surprised, you know, how how much, like, of an influence Canadian wrestling actually has around the world. Uh, I'm not saying everyone's influenced by it, but I'm just saying, like, there's always uh, some type of footstep that always ends up leading back to some... something back in Canada, you know? <laughs> whether it be Calgary, whether it be Winnipeg, uh, you know it's, it's, you know, there's, there's always some type of like foot back into Canada. And, and like I said, you know, like I, I love pro wrestling. I love Canadian wrestling. I love Lucha Libre. I, I love Puro, strong style, you know, Brit rest, you know, like a uh, technical wrestling, you know, I, to me it's, it's always wrestling. And if it's awesome, I, and I can enjoy it. It doesn't, it really doesn't matter to me what you could describe the style or what the style primarily is. If I enjoy it and you enjoy it, then, you know, that's all that should matter.
0: If you're hooked, you're hooked, right? You're hooked. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) If you enjoy it, that's all that matters. Exactly. Now, before I bring in our next guest, I'm going to play a clip from Stampede Wrestling. Now, in this clip, you're going to hear the trials and tribulations and the dangers of being a promoter in Canadian wrestling, which will tie us directly into our next guest. But in this clip, you're going to hear uh, Stu Hart. You're going to hear, again, the voice of Stampede Wrestling in the ring, uh, Mr. Ed Whalen. You're going to hear that he's a goddamn heel, in the words of Jim Cornette, Archie the Stomper Goldie. Uh, you won't hear him, but in the video, uh, you're going to hear Stu Hart be assaulted, if you will, by the likes of Jr. Foley, and then you're going to hear uh, the save by our hero of the time, uh, Bret Hart. So we're going to get into this classic audio from Stampede Wrestling, and on the other side, I'm very happy to be joined by Canadian Wrestling's elite, Mr. Danny Duggan.
4: Well, Stu Hart, there's been all sorts of action here, and <laughs> I can remember the days when you used to call uh, Archie Goldie the stopper in here to kind of clean house, and now uh, I know after an allocation in Vancouver, he's and some of the things he's saying, he's after you. Yeah, well, one time, I remember one
2: time uh, we are having a lot of trouble with Abdullah, and it looked like he was running herd around here, so... Uh, I did. Uh, I was provoked and prevailed by some of his friends, Goldie's friends, to uh, call the Stomper in the clean house. So sure enough, uh, I brought uh, the Stomper in, and uh, he did run uh, Abdul out. I've got to give Goldie credit. He's a tough son of a gun. He's one of the toughest wrestlers that I know in the business, and uh, I have a lot of respect for him. I started a son of a gun out when he was a big, uh, raw-boned 240-pound kid, who was playing football yes. for the
5: North Hill Blizzard or something like that, then. Yes, playing I, football. I remember that. Well, speak of the devil. I believe everybody has equal time here on the TV, and I don't believe anybody wants to stand Uh-oh. out, sit at home and watch listen to you for an hour i have my I interview now interview. my interview is now and your time, you time I is up. Of the courtesy waiting Did i finish my interview your time is up i got my stopwatch right here oh yeah just well, a minute Still knocks him down with a beautiful elbow takes a look at him that uppercut at close range. I can't get out of here. J.R. Foley grabbing him from behind. Pulls him down. Now it's two against one. The crowd yelling.
4: Two of them after him. That's ridiculous. Hey,
5: Will he stays the cake for me. I've seen it all. There he is. Archie stomper. It's okay for you to jump me. Will you jump my father? It's a different thing. Don't you ever don't you ever jump me from behind again i got a contract here and the only name is it is mine because you don't have enough guts to put your name on this contract i'm going to see how much guts you got there you go man punk put your name out if you got any got well out goes the stopper who's running now every time i get in the ring with a stopper i come in and he runs away it's the first time I've seen a contract. And if you've got a pen, I'll sign it right now. And next week, me and Archie Goldie will settle it. So once and for all, because I watched Archie Stomper for years. He come back now. He's a big man. He's a tough guy. But I was here for five years. I earned a reputation. And everyone in this building and all the people that have watched wrestling for five years know that I had a good, solid reputation. And I'm a Western Canadian boy. He's a Western Canadian boy. If he wants to settle something, we'll get in the ring. I promise, I'll okay. beat that old man. Okay, red Hart, with a
4: contract to make the stopper.
0: Early in the program, we discussed the Stampede territory itself, but what did and does promoting a territory like Stampede actually entail. To answer that, I'm very happy to welcome to the program the man who wears many hats for Canadian wrestling's elite, but most important to the context of this program, he is the promoter of CWE, Mr. Hotshot, Danny Duggan himself. Danny, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So for anybody who is not aware, CWE, although it doesn't run exactly the same territory, it runs, as far as I can tell, about the closest thing to the same territory as Stampede Wrestling used to run back in the day.
1: Yeah, I would say we pretty much run pretty much identical to the territory they ran in terms of what we cover on our national tours, but we've actually expanded past that. Uh, Prior to the COVID restrictions and the lockdown across the country, we were operating Vancouver through Ottawa with our debut event supposed to be taking place in Quebec this past March. So we pretty much had the entire country minus the Maritimes covered um, prior to the lockdown so we, we cover a lot of ground with the tours and I'm sure we'll get into those specifics um, but with Stu's territory he was specifically in Alberta um, he would do some some eastern British Columbia Saskatchewan and once in a blue moon uh, you know make it out to Manitoba but that's that's all part of our regular loop as Alberta has now become one of our more prominent uh, touring markets and uh, Manitoba is our home so we're here quite a bit as well
0: So it's interesting you you brought that up. I want to read you a quote from Bret Hart's book, or I want to ask you if this sounds (laughs) at all any way familiar. So then make a three-hour drive to Edmonton on Saturday, driving back after the show in the middle of the night. We'd be home in Calgary for Sunday, where we'd have our bookings, general business meetings at the Hart House. On Monday, we'd drive 400 miles to Saskatoon, staying in a sleazy hotel Monday night. And then on Tuesday, we'd drive 180 miles from Saskatoon to Regina. Sometimes we'd stay over, but we'd often drive the 500 miles back to Calgary after the show, arriving with the sunrise Wednesday morning. Wednesday was 150 miles north to Red Deer, then back after the show. Thursday is 225 miles south to Lethbridge and back. This went on every week of the year. Does that at all sound a little bit familiar from uh, your experiences running, obviously, out west in Canada?
1: Yeah, that pretty much sums up life of a Canadian professional wrestler. Uh, You know, with the tours themselves, like, we do 30, you know, we're doing 30 to 36 days in a row, so we wouldn't have a day off, and we're just going town to town, one after the other, just kind of one giant loop. Um, But even outside of CWE, or even when we're doing single shots or three- or four-day tours, or, you know, smaller-scale stuff, that's that's pretty much Canadian wrestling in a nutshell. Like, being here in Winnipeg, I've been wrestling now, you know, will be 18 years uh, next month, And, you know, the closest out of province city that had regular wrestling when I was breaking in was Regina, which was a six hour drive. And that's, you know, on the low end of things, you know, it was quite common. We're doing, you know, drives to Calgary and Edmonton two, three times a month. That's a 13 hour overnight drive. Get to Calgary, the day of the show, you would wrestle that night and you would either, you know, try to get some sleep and be on the road first thing in the morning to head up to Edmonton or you would continue driving another three hours overnight so you can get to Edmonton and try to sleep as much as you can prior to the event in Edmonton that night, and either you're getting up and going to another show the next day or you're getting in the car and driving back 13 hours home that same night. So it, it's very common uh, when you're traveling to Canadian Independence to be doing those long drives, and that's part of why, and I'm sure we'll get into it, why you know the CWE tours are structured and laid out the way they are is all the major markets in Canada are so far and they're so spread out that you have no choice but to get in the car and do the drives, you know, rain or shine, snow or, or summer. You're you're doing them because in the US, you take any major US market and you, you know, pin it on the map and you do a, a five hour radius, you're gonna find ten other major cities with a million people in them or, or close to it that you can run and, and and operate your business in. You don't have that in Canada. You have your major cities in each province and a whole lot of dead space in between that you gotta either make up driving or you gotta stop it and do the small towns in between.
0: So it's interesting that you said that earlier in the program we were discussing you know the differences between travel times in America for example and travel times in in Canada and I'm not talking about specifically the time between places but the drive itself like we're we're talking highways that are sometimes not really highways highways that are maybe you're doing you know, 80, 70 kilometers an hour, that's all you can do on on them because they're winding through prairie land or they're winding through the Rockies or they're winding through a lot of heavily forested areas. There are a lot of times in Canada when you're driving from small town to small town, you'll drive, you know, 50, 60, 70 kilometers, not see one single soul on the road. You'll be driving, you know, 100 kilometers. And I'm talking not just not a soul as in not a car on the road, but no farmland, no developed anything. It's, it's you, no street lights, you in the road, and whatever wildlife you may encounter. Um, just to put that into context, you're talking about the tour that you ran. I found one of your old tours, not that old. Uh, listen to me talk. If we're in the pandemic era and nobody's been able to run anything for, for the goddamn past year. but this is from your uh, pick the pick your poison tour that you had Jake Roberts on, I believe, correct?
1: Yes, that was a 21-day tour at the end of 2017, uh, beginning of 2018.
0: So I'm going to run down this list here, just to to to, because we can talk and we can say, oh, you know, it's a long drive between towns, but it's kind of hard to quantify that. So I've gone through this tour schedule and I've actually mapped out the kilometers you traveled on this. So we'll we'll see if uh, even if this blows your mind, but. uh So starting from Winnipeg to Stonewall, that was your first stop on the tour. That's 56 kilometers. From there, you're going to Gladstone. That's 123 kilometers. Now you're going to Yorktown. Now we're crossing the border from Manitoba to Saskatchewan. For all those international listeners out there, that's another 304 kilometers. From Yorktown to Melfort is 280 kilometers. Then to Prince Albert is another 95 kilometers. To Saskatoon is 138 kilometers. And now we cross the border again. We're going from Saskatchewan to Alberta. For a a quick jaunt, it's only 534 kilometers to your next show in St. Albert, Alberta. Not to be outdone there, we're going to cross borders again. We're going into BC, which you had talked about earlier. We're going to Golden, BC. A short trip, only 572 kilometers away from your previous night. We take a trip back into Alberta from BC into Calgary. That's another 263 kilometers Down to Medicine Hat for 292 kilometers. Crossing the border again backwards to Saskatchewan. uh, We're hitting Assiniboia. That's uh, 388 kilometers. We go to Regina for 175. uh, 224 kilometers only to Moosman. So there's a big win of it all. Then we cross the border into friendly Manitoba. Where you hit Verdon. That's 66 kilometers away from Moosman. Uh, From there you're going to Seurus. Which is 71 kilometers away from then. Uh, Brandon, the shortest trip on this entire thing, including Winnipeg to Stonewall, uh, sewers to Brandon, only 48 kilometers, in- incredible, I'm sure, at this point in time.
1: i to think we'd be sleeping in that day and catching up on some rest. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. We're usually up till 6 a.m. and dragging ourselves out of bed at uh, 11 in the morning to get to the gym the next day.
0: Oh, exactly. And, uh, <laughs> and not, not, not like you're going to take it easy either after that, because now you're off to Morden for a 210 kilometer drive. Now you're back into Winnipeg, and I want to touch on that show after this is all said and done, but that's a 126-kilometer drive. Now we're going to cross borders again. We're going east out into Ontario to Thunder Bay, a nice little 702-kilometer drive. And then we're going to do our last stop that I have recorded on this tour to Sault Ste. Marie, another 700-kilometer drive. So from what I have written down here, you, you hit 20 cities in 20 days, You guys drove 5,364 kilometers total on this trip.
1: Well, if you think that's wild, by the end of that year, not even 12 months later, we had added an additional 14, 14 to 16 shows on the tour. And we started going up to northern Alberta. So usually by the time we were done Edmonton, we were going up to Grand Prairie, which is about five-, six-hour drive from Edmonton. And then we were cutting over to Prince George, B.C. in northern British Columbia, which was another six-hour drive. We hit a couple markets in that area that were around two to three hours apart. And then we'd do a five-hour drive to the west coast of Vancouver, and we hit up Vancouver. And then when we were done there, we would start heading back east with a stop in the Okanagan, either in the Kamloops, Penticton, or Vernon. Um, And then from from there, we'd do that loop you just mentioned. we hit all those towns all the way through to Winnipeg, uh, hit Thunder Bay, hit Sault Ste. Marie, and then when we were done that seven-hour drive to Sault Ste. Marie, we'd go another uh, six hours to Sudbury, another five hours to Toronto, and another four to Ottawa. And by the time it was all done, we had a nice 32-hour drive home to get back to Winnipeg when the tour was all wrapped up. So I think we ended up capping out something like 11,000 kilometers by the time it was all said and done on that, that last tour.
0: And I, I can't stress that enough to any international listeners that are listening. A lot of this is done in the wintertime, too, or in less than favorable months of driving. When you're driving on a lot of these highways, it's ooh, there's, uh, there's some sketchy highways, especially in, in that you know, northern Manitoba, I know for sure, because I've driven it myself, but when you're going out west, there stretches a highway where you're weaving and winding through through uh, heavily forested areas, and, and there are, there are sections where, you know, the posted speed limit says 70, and you can't even drive that, especially in, you know, blizzardy conditions, or if it's raining or whatever, it's, it's, it's incredible the amount of, of miles, hard miles that you have to put on just to make towns like that in Canada
1: yeah luckily manitoba saskatchewan and alberta for the most part the roads are pretty good with it being in the prairies so other other than getting stuck on a one-lane highway when it's raining or snowing it's it's not too bad when you get stuck behind those trucks on a one-lane highway and you can't see to pass that's when it gets a little bit scary uh the most dangerous parts of those trips would definitely be british columbia northern british columbia when you start getting up there you're going through the mountains you're going through the forest Um, So there's some pretty scary drives going from northern British Columbia down to Vancouver, where you're encountering all kinds of wildlife, all kinds of wavy roads and and very short highway. And then I would say the most dangerous in Canada would, would definitely be, at least on our tour, would be northwestern Ontario. Once you start getting past Thunder Bay and you start going towards Sault Ste. Marie, Sudbury, and then further east, That's when it gets really scary. And so it's a one-lane highway the entire way. And then we start deviating off to the the small northern communities in Ontario, the highways are really sketchy. And uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, you know, May of last year, I was in a really bad car accident where I actually, you know, was very close to losing my life on one of those tours uh, from the vehicle hitting a ditch um, in some really bad wet raining conditions while we were on our way to one of the towns where I ended up, you know, drowning. And having to be pulled out and saved um you know that's that, that was two or three days before the end of that trip and that was it for me um so the, the realities are very very real um it, it, the, it's it, you can get on those roads and it can be a perfectly fine day or you can get a day like we had that day where it's raining it's a little bit of snow and you know you're just as good as your driver is that day and unfortunately on that day specifically you know i i we, you know we hit a ditch and Luckily, no one was seriously hurt, and we all recovered. But it could have very well went the other way, and and that's something I'm very surprised it doesn't happen more often. Especially, you know, being on the road for almost two decades and knowing the amount of times guys have traveled and how frequently they were traveling pre-COVID, uh, to know that so many guys have gotten out unscathed on these highways because the the risk is very real.
0: That was the uh, tour with Psychosis, I believe. Correct?
1: Yes, sir. He was my Superman. He was the one that pulled me out of the car from from drowning.
0: That's right I remember I, I had seen the pictures of that on Twitter and I it's one of those things where you look at it and you don't process it right away right And then you you look at it again and you're like, what the hell am I looking at And then you get you, then you get the story and it's like Jesus Christ and it to your point it is surprising that you know it doesn't happen a lot more because of you know distances traveled and, and you know various road hazards that you may or may not encounter on on the travels itself. it's incredible
7: and it's scary to think like
1: i remember you know vividly when it was happening not being concerned as the car started to spin out because i couldn't tell you the amount of times we've hit a ditch in the last 18 years on the highway like it's it's common practice that it's going to happen a couple times throughout the winter especially traveling on all the different highways that we've mentioned uh you know it becomes a part of the lifestyle you know it's you're gonna have some slippery roads you're gonna end up in a ditch there's gonna be too much snow you know but it happens you know you know in a way where you weren't putting in serious risk, but it happens enough where you kind of get used to it and you start to kind of take it for granted. and go, oh, that's going to be fine. No big deal. And I recall that very much being the case as we were slipping. It was like, oh, we're hitting the ditch. We've done this a dozen times before, not thinking anything of it, you know, until the car was upside down and filling up with water. And that's when the panic started to come in. But I recall, you know, as, as that vehicle was slipping, going, ah, just another day at the office. <laughs> the we have to get pulled out. And on our way to the show, we'll be, we'll be a little bit late, but it'll be fine. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, there's a curveball in that plan that day. But, you know, more times or not, that's kind of what happens. That's just the, the reality of being on those roads and driving in those conditions. And you just learn to kind of be numb to it.
0: Obviously, the, the travel itself is a big hindrance uh, when you're booking in Canada. You know, we talked briefly about the weather as well. A lot of people, you know, they hear Canada, the Great White North, they're automatically, you know, you guys live in a tundra and there's igloos and all this kind of shit. Um, obviously when Stu Hart was running Stampede Wrestling, I was reading a lot of correspondences that he had with the NWA where he's constantly asking for help to get wrestlers over the border, help with, with trans, help with getting their papers done. I just talk a little bit about, um, what it's like as a Canadian promoter to not only run the towns that you're running, but to bring in international talent into Canada, kind of the, some of the roadblocks and some of the issues that you constantly find yourself running into?
1: Uh, luckily, for the most part, it's not as challenging as it may have been back then um, in the sense that it's, it's been happening now for so long that there are systems in place to, to do it pretty much um, hindrance-free. It's, it's perfectly legal and fine for professional wrestlers to come and ply their trade in Canada as an entertainer. So as long as they've got a clean record and they're they're honest at the border, they can cross into the country and wrestle anytime without any visa or, or any paperwork that would say otherwise. So in that regard, it's very easy. Um, unfortunately, you know, for us Canadian wrestlers, we don't have that same benefit. The U.S. law isn't the same as the Canadian law, and you do need to have uh, specific qualifications to be able to enter the U.S. to wrestle. Uh, talent coming from America or Europe or Japan coming to Canada, they don't have that roadblock. So as long as they got the proper information and, and their itinerary on why they're coming, it's relatively easy. Um, but with that being said, we have had guys that have been turned away at the border uh, because they weren't honest with me or honest with customs officials on some of their past history. And once you get caught being dishonest with the government official, your chances of being able to enter that country and uh, not getting a fine are very slim. So unfortunately, there have been a couple cases of that over the years, uh, but 99 percent of the time it's, it's fairly Fairly
0: simple process. So, when we're talking about promoting in Canada, we're talking about running towns again for our international listeners. And I don't mean to, you know, stigmatize America or anything, but a lot of this will, will focus on the American point of view of things. When you're hearing about independent programs running, you know, there's such a stigma again, mostly from America, where it's, oh, this, you know, to quote Jim Cornette, this outlaw mud show is running, and there's 10 people in a barn out in you know wherever friends and family and it, and it's just a it's a outlaw event and there's there's no you know promotion behind it it's just a bunch of joggers essentially running this program but when you we're talking about independent wrestling here in Canada even going back to the Stampede days you know and I'm talking about the early Stampede days of the 40s the 50s there's been some top-notch high-quality organizations that have run across Canada organizations like yourself as well where it's you know, you're not running a barn in the middle of nowhere, right? This is, you you have so much travel to plan for. You have so many venues to book. You have so much talent to put in place. This isn't uh, This isn't some mom and pop organization. And I feel like independent wrestling, not so much in Canada, but in other parts of the world, maybe gets such a bad rap as being, you know, low budget or low grade or nobody goes or whatever. And that's simply not the case, is it?
1: It's a double-edged sword, and, that uh, you know, the extended answer to what you're asking is, you know, part of why we started CWE um, is there's a lot of incredible talent in Canada that no one has ever heard of, that no one has ever seen, and sadly, some may never hear of. Um, Just based on our geography, we're we're in very small markets comparable to, to the major U.S. markets. We're not affiliated with any major national organizations. So there's a lot of guys here that are extremely talented, and I would go on record saying better than a lot of the talent that are currently on TV now that just don't get their opportunity or just do because they just don't get seen by the right people or they're just not in the right place at the right time. And people who have better geographical um, location tend to get those opportunities a little sooner than some guys do here. So that's kind of why we started CWE. is to trying to bring more attention to Canadian wrestling and, and you know, spotlight and showcase the talent we have here because once people kind of catch on to some of these guys, they usually do very well for themselves. You know, you know Kenny Omega being a great example of that. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talent here. Not to say there's not a lot of shitty wrestling here too. You know, Canada has its fair share of really bad wrestling as well. Um, and that's where it's a double-edged sword. You know, the really good talent doesn't get seen um, because, you know, we don't have the the same reach as some of the other major independent organizations in the U.S., but at the same time, a lot of our bad wrestling doesn't get seen either, which is really good. Um, But with that being said, uh, Canada has a different stigma when it comes to independent wrestling than it does in the U.S., and I can attest to that because, you know, prior to, to the borders being closed, I wrestle in the U.S. more often than I wrestle in Canada, and America definitely does have some great wrestling fans, very respectful wrestling fans, appreciative wrestling fans, but I would say the casual general public doesn't take wrestling as seriously as a Canadian citizen or wrestling fan does there. It's very, it's very much viewed as kind of ha ha that fake wrestling, that phony wrestling, that silly wrestling on TV. Um, you know, just based on years of, uh, wrestling kind of being bastardized on national television, it kind of has a stigma to the general public. Um, we I find that people of Canada, and it was the same way when I was in Japan as well, are very respectful of professional wrestling. They understand that it's entertainment, and they appreciate it for what it is and appreciate uh, you know, the effort and the, the talent and ability that goes into being an um, elite performer. So I think that's the major difference you know, between Canada, and the U.S., and the U.S. compared to other parts of the world, is people understand what wrestling is here, and they appreciate it for that, and they're supportive of it because of that. Where in the U.S. it's like, oh, it's that fake wrestling bullshit and uh, there's maybe a misunderstanding of exactly the type of art that professional wrestling is and because of that there's a lack of appreciation for the effort and ability that goes into performing perform it at a high level and be successful um, at a top tier level in the world of professional wrestling and that, and that is a generalization, like I said, there is fans that are appreciative and understanding of what it is down there, but as a, as a general population, that's kind of the feeling you get down there compared to, to fans in other parts of the world
0: just to circle back to the comment you made about Canadian wrestling fans. I think because of of organizations like Stampede Wrestling and especially in the in Western Canada, there's always been such a western alienation feel uh, in Canada still to this day. We still feel it with the way you know Western Canada and the feds do not see to eye we haven't for well, I'm 35. It's not been my entire life for sure. In Western Canada, a a lot of of our traditions and whatever are so deeply rooted and ingrained. I can remember uh, my nan and Papa talking to me that they used to watch Stampede Wrestling at home. They would gather their friends together. My nan and Papa were the only ones of their friends that had a TV (laughs) And, and they would watch it. And so you hear these stories and then I can vaguely remember when I was a kid, I must have been 4 or 5 at my Nana and Papa's place and they had wrestling like WWF from that would have been like 89 or 90 and uh Bret Hart was on TV and my papa I never forget made some offhand comment of oh that's Stu's kid and I didn't get it at the time right but now like as, as you you know you get older and you, and you start you know learning a little bit about history and you start Realizing who, just how deep these uh, these tentacles go in, into the, the grain of Western Canada, it's incredible. Which is why I think that there are all, so many talents from from America, from Japan, from Mexico that like to come to Canada to wrestle because of, of how the fans are here, of how the experience is. Maybe not the travel portion of it, but the experience of being in Canada, being in these small towns, being in, in front of a fan base that just really appreciates the art form
1: 100 and i got two responses to that on both the fan side and the wrestler side and i think that you know you, you know you mentioned stampede wrestling um you know that's been ingrained in western canadian culture you know dating back to you know the, you know, the 60s 70s 80s um so if you're if you grew up in western canada you grew up on stampede wrestling if you look at winnipeg uh, Winnipeg grew up on AWA wrestling up until the late 80s. You know, there was monthly events at the Winnipeg Arena that were jam-packed with thousands of people. Um, so at a time where entertainment options were limited, you didn't have the TV available that you have now or the internet or different forms of entertainment. Wrestling was a you know a go-to outing for people. So a lot of people in Western and Central Canada they grew up on professional wrestling. And if you look at the type of product Stampede Wrestling presented, it was a very hard-hitting, innovative, fast-paced style of professional wrestling. Uh, if you look at the AWA, it you know wasn't maybe as aggressive or as fast-paced, but it was definitely presented as very real and very competitive and very athletic. So the wrestling that people grew up on in Canada was taken very seriously it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't treated as a joke it wasn't treated as ha ha phony fake wrestling it was treated as a competitive sport um presented in the form of entertainment and you know that even goes as far as you know in Canada with Maple Leaf Wrestling in, in Ontario so Canadian wrestling fans and the Canadian population in general I think were brought up on respecting professional wrestling for the art form it is and the ability it takes to perform it at a high level Um, And I think that's why, you know, wrestling fans are so supportive of it here. And I can attest now from, you know, promoting well over 600 events across this country. It doesn't matter what part of the country you go to. I can stop in a random business and start talking about the wrestling show coming to town. And chances are four to five people got a wrestling story. You bring up professional wrestling. They all remember watching a certain product as a kid or getting together with their dad and watching it or at their grandparents or going to the arena with their friends everyone has some era of wrestling they grew up on or some wrestling memory that they cherish. Even if they're a wrestling fan now, that they still remember to this day that they were brought up on. So I think, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia and a lot of feel good for people when it comes to Canadian wrestling, uh, just because it was something they were brought up on. And because it was presented so seriously, that's like, you know, my second half of the comment, Um, you know, prior to, to the lockdown, closing up the borders here, you know, I think in 2019, we had something like 10 different countries represented on these tours, you know, from all over Europe and Mexico and Japan. Um, and these are people that came to us. These were people that we sought out. These were wrestlers that came to us and said, we want the opportunity to wrestle in Canada. And that's been a constant now for, you know, your 12 years of operating CWE uh, people in the wrestling business have wrestling in Canada on their bucket list because it has produced such good quality wrestlers for so many decades and because it's a, a country that has taken wrestling seriously for so long, very much like Japan's a bucket list place for a lot of wrestlers, because you know you have these places that have such fond memories of wrestling being treated like wrestling. And you look at Stampede wrestling and the product they produce and the AWA, and then you start looking at the wrestlers that came out of Canada, you know from you know, Brett Nolan Hart to, to you know, the new generation of guys like Chris Jericho or now Kenny Omega. Um, there's just been decades. And there's so many more. I think probably list dozens and dozens of top wrestlers who are from Canada that went on to be major stars around the world, and they're all appreciated for being good, quality, professional wrestlers and being you know, the very best of their class. So I think there's a, there's a special place in people's hearts for Canadian wrestling, and they want to be able to experience it and, and kind of check that off on the list and say, hey, I wrestled there too.
0: So it's funny you mention that. I'm going to play a clip here. And it's from Stampede Wrestling. Uh, this would have been in 83, I believe. And when Stampede used to run, there used to be the Calgary Stampede as well. And for anybody who's not familiar with this, this is a, a big-time international event where you, you're doing... Oh, God. Anything you could possibly <laughs> equate to being a cowboy is done at the Stampede, or done at the Calgary Stampede. There's Chuck Barrel races. There's uh, horse racing. There's... All kinds of fairs, all kinds of festivals, whatever, and
1: gangbangs in the back alleys, cowboy
0: hats. <laughs> and when uh, Stampede Wrestling used to run, they would always run a a huge monster show every time at that at that location or at that event, right? And they would get top. And when we're talking top talent, we're not talking just you know ham and eggers from whatever. Insert your favorite promotion here. We're talking about some of the biggest stars. In wrestling period so I'm going to play this clip for you Uh, I want to get your take on it on the other side of it
1: let's hear
0: it now in this clip for everybody listening at home you're going to hear the voices of Stampede Wrestling's own Ed Whalen you're going to hear obviously Stu Hart the uh, topic of our current conversation and you're also going to hear Ed Schober now interesting note about him he is the NWA promoter from Hanover Germany and he like, again, I was talking about uh, Stu's connections to the NWA, both with my conversation with Danny and with my conversation with Ashley. It's very interesting to see that, you know, the tendrils of the NWA reached this far into Canada, and thus the NWA is trying to send talent from other regions of the world, not just America, not just Japan, but Germany as well into Canada for training. So we're going to get to this interview and then get back to Danny's thoughts on the other side of it.
4: Ed Schober of Hanover, West Germany is one of the world's most outstanding wrestling promoters. What is Ed Schober of Germany doing in the Calgary area right now? Well, he's scouting talent for an international tournament in Germany. Maybe before I get to talk to Eddie, I should introduce the people. From my far right, promoter Stu Hart, Mr. Schober, and alderman Gordon Schrake of Calgary. First of all, Gordon, if I might step in front of you. Mr. Schober, it's good to see you in our part of the world. You have a marvelous reputation worldwide, and I know you're looking for talent, right? I'm looking for talent, and I know
7: that my friend Stu Hart has some of it. And just for the big tournament in Hannover, I will take his sons and some of the you guys you have seen today here.
4: Well, Stu Hart, it's a pleasure to have a man like uh, Mr. Schauber in this area.
2: he got a um, tremendous reputation for uh, fair play and bringing in the finest wrestlers in the world in Hanover. And uh, we're very fortunate that we've been able to send some of our boys like John Quinn and Archie the Stomper and uh, and um, uh, Mr. Hito. And Mr. Gagne, they've all been over there, and they've done. Uh, they've been very, very pleased. They, keep, they well, we have, are,
4: uh, we're certainly pleased to have uh, him here. And uh, I know that Gordon Shrake on behalf of the City of Calgary, has a welcome to our German visitor, Gordy. Yes, actually, on behalf of members of City Council and the Mayor, and our Boxing and Wrestling Commission, I want to extend to you a little token. It's a symbol of our Western hospitality one of our city of calgary white hats okay alderman Shrake reaching in there and uh oh that's a beautiful hat beautiful thing
5: now this one i think
4: he can't go by without a tie so we're going to do the string tie business as well and i wonder if his uh have you parked his horse outside? Uh, okay, the cow- so when you get your cowboy boots on, we got your horse out there. But our best <laughs> to you, and welcome to our fair city there. Thank you. Okay. Up. Ed Schober of Hanover, Germany. Gordy Schrake, Alderman of the City of Calgary, and promoter Stu Hart. Now, while I've got a moment here, I do want to tell you that next time around, that's next week for those people in the Calgary area, Uh, Talk about the stars of Stampede Wrestling. We're going to have the world champion, Harley Race. We're going to have the former champion, Dory Funk. They will collide head-on. And I'll tell you, that'll be quite a match because uh, both of them are magnificent wrestlers. Now, beyond that, Harley Race later will defend against either Mr. Sakurata or Leo Burke. They will uh, meet in the final event of tonight's card. Andre the Giant is coming to this territory, all seven feet, six inches, and 460 or 70 pounds of them. Big chunk of man, and without question, the biggest draw in the wrestling game today. We will have Nelson Royal, the world junior heavyweight champion. He will either meet the Dynamite Kid or Norman Frederick Charles, depending on what happens here. We will have the most outstanding wrestling midgets, in the world so you people in the Calgary area better brace your feet because uh, we're gonna have quite an onslaught of talent maybe you better grab those tickets too they'll be uh, the bouts will be staged during those two Fridays of Stampede week here in the city of Calgary so don't forget that's Harley Race Dory Funk jr. Nelson Royal the world junior champion Andre the Giant the wrestling midgets the lineup of talent goes simply on and on and on. You'll be guaranteed some super Stampede excitement if you'll come on down and see the stars of Stampede Wrestling in action. The two Fridays of Stampede Week, some tremendous action here in the city of Calgary at the Calgary Stampede. Okay.
0: They're bringing in NWA champion Harley Race, they're bringing in Dory Funk Jr., they're bringing in Andre the Giant, all these top top tier names and it's funny like just going back to our earlier conversation about you know Canadian wrestlers getting exposure elsewhere and wrestlers wanting to come to Canada for the same exposure in front of the fans it's just this is something that's been happening since you know the 40s it's it's just it's been a constant a constant influx and outflux of people who who just means so much to the business who who either want to come to Canada or, you know, for training or to get experience in the programs or even just to be a part of the scene. Like, it's not something that's should... just. I know a lot of people are on the Kenny Omegan bandwagon right now and for, you know, good reason. He's one of the best in the world. But th- this didn't start, you know, in 2003 when Kenny started training right this is something that's been happening for for years and years and years and i find it so interesting that it's still something that's prevalent in uh in wrestling today that people are still wanting to come to canada they hear about the legacy they want to be a part of it they want to cut their teeth they want to see what it's like it's just to me it's incredible yeah well that's something
1: we had to you know kind of rejuvenate that was something that you know just boggled my mind as i was coming up as a professional wrestler um, that that connection didn't really exist anymore. Um, you know, when you look at Stampede Wrestling specifically, you know, Dynamite Kid, Davy Boy Smith, like, they were brought in as young kids from England and became stars over here and polished themselves. Um, it was quite common that New Japan Pro Wrestling would send talent on their excursion to Stampede Wrestling. It's, you know, where the likes of Ju Liger went on his first, you know, international trip and learned the business before becoming a big star over in Japan. Um, so it was quite common that companies internationally would send their talent over to season them and get them ready and, uh, you know, polish them up so they could work with anybody of any style from any part of the world before they got a major run in their country. Um, So that was something that, that was common practice, and that's something that kind of disappeared, and it probably kind of disappeared, you know, because the territory system disappeared and there wasn't as much work or opportunity. So that's something that, you know, we kind of wanted to bring back with Canadian Wrestling's Elite and why we... You know, have been so open to having talent from around the world come in here and, and perform with us and hopefully open some doors the other way. And, you know, just in the last 10 years alone, like through CWE, wrestlers have gotten WWE opportunity, Ring of Honor opportunity, uh, you know, Japan opportunity, uh, opportunity in Germany. Uh, Right before the lockdown, some of our guys were scheduled to go down and wrestle in Mexico because of contacts they made here. Um, So that was something we were very proud of and something we were very much trying to put together because there wasn't a lot of that going on. Um, So that's something that we very much, you know, will continue to, once things open up, try to present for people because there wasn't a lot going on for Canadian wrestlers. There really wasn't a way to get out and do anything if you didn't have the right contacts to do it. So that's something that we're very proud of that we've been able to kind of present and offer Uh, You know, wrestlers to come up here and do and and kind of exchange that favor back and forth for different talent.
0: Just keeping with Stampede Wrestling, what kind of uh, lessons do you think that either wrestlers today or people looking to get into the business, whether it's promoting or, you know, announcing or refereeing, what lessons can they take from Stu Hart and what he did with Stampede Wrestling?
1: Oh, man, so many. Just like, you know, the way we set up our business model um, to try to be. Be sufficient um, in covering so many miles is, is definitely you know definitely a page out of Stu's book and how he operated his territory. Um, and it may seem like <laughs> I don't I don't know if it's a, a negative, but you know after reading so much about the territory, you know you know Stu specifically and you know different books by different members of the family that kind of talked about how the business was operated and how it had you know fluctuated up and down over the years. It was kind of an inspiration to see that it wasn't all glory all the time because um, when you look at a Stampede wrestling and, and the success it had and the huge crowds and the huge stars it produced, you know, you have it up on a pedestal of how, how big of a company and how, uh, you know, how big of a company it was and what it meant to professional wrestling and, and his contribution. Um, but realistically there was a lot of struggles and hardships along the way. And even with a lot of incredible talent, um, it was still a grind to be successful. You know, there was years that his family, you know, owned limos and sports cars and there was other times that they were, you know, sharing clothes um, because, you know, houses weren't up to, to where they needed to be the previous years. They had to take a dip in their lifestyle. So I think, if anything, it was, you know, a good eye-opening experience to be realistic to what the business is, how it can fluctuate, that it's going to be good and it's going to be bad sometimes and it's not necessarily a reflection of the product, uh, but just a reflection of, of the business and, and how it cycles and and how to stay on top of it and be successful. So I think uh, I've taken a lot of inspiration and, and optimism from the Stampede wrestling territory to, to know that you know it's not you know just because sometimes you know sometimes can be rough and, and there could be some struggles along the way that it's not necessarily a certain and it's not always going to be for the long term and you just got to keep pushing through and present the right talent and keep building your brand and it will stand on its own. And that's, uh, you know, that inspiration is what has kept us going for 12 years and has kept us expanding into different markets and knowing that, you know, just because, you know, we had one rough go around or a couple month go around that was a little harder than usual to pay the bills. It doesn't mean it's always going to be like that. And if we're confident in our product and the talent that we're presenting, it's going to come around full circle. And it, it, it more times than not always does. So I think that's uh, been a big Big uh, contribution from Stampede Wrestling to us is just that motivation to keep on pushing through uh, through the hard times and
0: the good. Obviously, Stu Hart's legacy in Canada is well documented and well cemented. Uh, you you would be hard pressed to not you know you you know be in a room of ten people and some of them not or at least one not know who Stu Hart is or have a Stu Hart story or or the voice or whatever. <laughs> but what would you what would you say that uh, Stu Hart's uh, legacy is from an international point of view
1: um if you're going to talk about international point of view i would probably say his sons um you know brett nolan went on to be two of the biggest stars in you know the history of the business and two of the highest regarded ring technicians in the history of professional wrestling so i would say Stu's legacy internationally would probably be you know his his sons and, and their ability and how they went on to be such major stars that have, you know, captivated an entire generation of wrestler. Because uh, when you look at guys like Brett and Owen, especially, you know, in the '90s when it was a big man's game, and you know, you know, being a smaller wrestler, being a technical wrestler was was kind of hidden in the background and not being front and center. They definitely changed that. And if you look at a lot of the wrestlers today, um, and the style of wrestling today, a lot of that can be contributed to Brett and Owen's contributions to the business and their style of professional wrestling. And if you were to survey, you know, the wrestlers today, I would say a vast majority, if not all of them um, would probably um, associate Brett and Owen as inspirations to them uh, to get into the business and be able to perform the way they do now, because, you know, their style of professional wrestling was very unique and very rare at the time, especially on a national level. And they kind of helped change that landscape.
0: So as we look to wrap up, uh, obviously uh, in the current COVID environment, uh, it's few and far between that wrestling opportunities are going to present themselves right now. Uh, but what are you and the CWE looking forward to uh, moving forward in 2021?
1: Fingers crossed, we can get back in front of a live audience and you know a significant amount of people to keep this thing afloat. You know, I would be lying if I would say that this year's been easy. Um, you know, 2020 was supposed to be the biggest year in company history. We we're scheduled to, you know, debut in, in Montreal. Like I mentioned, um, we are you know, going to be going from 36 events on our tours to 40 plus and hopefully expanding to eastern canada uh we you know had some major stars that were coming up this way um the tours that we did have scheduled had more ring of honor and international talent booked on it than ever before so we were really gung-ho to really make a statement and, and put canadian wrestling on the map as a premier wrestling country um so more than anything we're really really looking forward to getting back to that you know just yesterday we had to cancel eight events between manitoba and alberta they were the two provinces we were still able to produce live events in and unfortunately they both extended or put restrictions in place that completely axed having any kind of public gatherings so there were our two lifelines left so it was you know a bit of a depressing day yesterday and today having to make that announcement but we know it's not going to be forever it might be long term it might be short term but it's not going to be forever so we're just trying to keep our head above water keep our brand relevant and and keep wrestling in people's minds because as soon as we do have the opportunity to get on the road again, that will be the first ones there. You know, CWE has been at the forefront of Canadian wrestling. Um, You know, we've produced over 20 events this year in front of a live crowd, which is more than any other organization in the country, um, with more markets ran than any other, you know, company in the country. Um, Just trying to work with what we're given. You know, we haven't been given a lot, you know, more times than not, it's like we're allowed 100 people at max... Um, which is nowhere near enough to pay the bills. And, you know, at that point, it's more of a passion project of just being able to get in the ring and still perform and keeping the brand alive. But luckily, we've got a good team of hungry wrestlers that are all about that, that, you know, want to wrestle regardless of how many people are in the audience because they love what we, you know, they love what they do, first and foremost. And secondly, they want to keep this brand alive and keep it growing. So uh, we, more than anything, are just waiting for that opportunity. As soon as they give us that green light to, hey, you can go and, You know, operate here and operate there, you better believe CWE will be there and we will have a ring set up and we're providing live wrestling. We're just waiting on the go-ahead.
0: On a personal note, I will say that I've been to, oh God, I couldn't even count how many CWE shows and I've always had a tremendous time. You guys always have just an incredible amount of, not just, well, especially the local talent, because there's been a lot of talent that you guys have had that I haven't seen before, until you see them on a CWE show and you're like, oh man, this guy's fantastic and then you see him at a a different show where you you know you catch him on twitter and now they're over in germany for example or they're somewhere else right it's just it's that real connectivity that i find with with the fans in cwe that i that is so important and i really do hope that you know when all this thing is said and done you're able to uh to pack the houses again until then uh where can fans find you personally right now
1: you can find me personally on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hotshot Danny Duggan, and you can find CWE at CWE Canada at Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.
0: And what's the website for CWE Canada?
1: CWECanada.ca, or you can pay attention to CWETickets.com, as that's where they're also listed uh, when live events are happening and good to go.
0: Danny, I very much appreciate having you on the program tonight.
1: I really appreciate you having me and uh, supporting and promoting Canadian wrestling. It truly is appreciated.
0: Now, before we move on to the main event of this evening's program, uh, we're going to play some classic audio from Stampede Wrestling. Now, in this clip, you're going to hear a voice of Stampede Wrestling, Ed Whalen, getting involved in the action, if you will. And this is a subject that is going to be covered in great detail with my next guest on the program. But in this clip, you're going to hear Ed Whalen, like I said, the voice of Stampede Wrestling, uh, getting into it with Bulldog Bob Brown. He's in the process of saving uh, Chris Benoit from getting jumped by Bulldog Bob Brown's stable. Uh, so you're going to hear a bunch of commotion. But more importantly, I want you to listen to not just Ed Whelan. I know he gets very involved in this and he's not everybody's cup of tea. Although in Canada, he was extremely important to that brand. But what I want you to listen to is the crowd. And that's something that Danny and myself were talking about. The Canadian crowd's are quite a bit different from any other types of crowds. And they really haven't changed in the last, you know, 50 years of of professional wrestling or sporting in general, right? A rowdy crowd in Canada is a rowdy crowd, and they're ready to get to it. So I'm going to play this clip. I want you to pay attention to the crowd. I also want you to pay attention to the names that are listed at the end of the program. Just, again, reinforcing that idea that a lot of top talent, a lot of top names came through the uh, Stampede Wrestling Territory, and we're there for obviously the tutelage of Stu Hart and uh, the promotional skills of Stampede Wrestling uh, to further their brands. But we're going to get to this classic audio from Stampede Wrestling. Please enjoy. And on the other side, our main event of the evening.
5: He's getting a little excited. Here comes Vulcan. Just a minute. What's going on here? What's going on here? They've got two of them after a little bedwine. What's she doing? What do you think you're doing? doing that you do know it no just a minute now you got no business just a minute you don't you understand don't slap him around you like that you don't understand I, I understand you everything now just a minute he came at me I had to right and I had to go well, head right the way around now just a minute now whatever you say don't make a damn bit of difference to me everybody. it makes a difference to me so what are you going to do about it what am I going to do about it I know, I know that I can convince the promoter that you will take this guy on and I hope he claims your clock Benoit give him a ride that's what he deserves that's what you deserve what he deserves, Chris. Take him on. Take him on. You've gone one step too far, Bob Brown. I'm telling you, you've gone one step too far. Next week, Bob Brown, I want you to put your name on the dotted line, and I'll tell you what, Bob Brown. You're going to be hanging up your boots once and for all, because when I am finished with you and this ring... You're gonna be on the way to the hospital. Yeah, I don't want to talk to you. What do you want to say? I won't come down there. You think I want to stand with those guys? What? What does he want? He wants you. Okay, he wants me. There's two things. Uh, Just a minute now, don't let me... I want to say one thing. There's two things. If If he wants me, I'll agree. But there's two things. Number one, he don't be in his corner. And number two, there'll be no television allowed. Because I tell you what I want to do. I don't want the Bleeding Heart Society and the churchgoers and the churchgoers to get after me for what's going to happen to the kids. I want a bigger microphone, about that long and made out of concrete. Get out of here. Get out of here.
4: Mama Mia, what a night. I apologize for getting involved. No, I, I don't know that I can because I, I suppose I'd do it again. Benoit is one of my favorite people. I He's such a gentleman. And the other guy, there was, there was well, there was no call for it. Okay, let me tell you what we've got coming up next week in this... Arena, what have we got? We've got the Commandos against the Sing Sing boys. That should be quite a tag team battle. Interesting in light of what happened tonight. We've got Benoit against Brown, as you may have noticed. No television, and of course Davy Boy Smith. Hopefully he'll be over an ankle injury. Hopefully it's not a fracture. He'll be going in against Steve Blackman, and a big man, six foot six. He's way over three hundred pounds. Goes by the name of the Grim Reaper, and he's masked. Will make his day. Debut in this territory. Whew. Anyway, we shall see you next week at this same time, but in the meantime, and in between time, that's it, another edition of Stampede Wrestling. Bye-bye now. For this portion
0: of the program, I'm very pleased to be joined by really the uh, preeminent author of the Stampede Wrestling territory, specifically, sorry, the history of it. This man has written, honestly, probably as close to the Bible of Stampede Wrestling as you could ever possibly get, and I'm very happy to have him join me tonight, Uh, the author of Pain and Passion, The History of Stampede Wrestling, and this is Heath McCoy on the line. How are you doing? Very good. So, Heath, what in the world would uh, get you to write this book on Stampede Wrestling?
7: Uh, for a I grew up with Stampede Wrestling. I, I'm a Saskatoon kid. Uh, I grew up in the early, you know, I was, I was at the right age in the early 80s, 10, 11 years old sort of thing, and, you know, Stampede Wrestling came on every afternoon on uh, Saturday afternoon on TV, 2 o'clock every, every afternoon, Saturdays, so, you know, I'd watch it, watch it with my friends. Beat up my brother, do some pretend to be one of the Hart brothers and beat up <laughs> my little brother. And you know, uh, my friends and I would play it at a recess and stuff. It was, it was uh, Stampede wrestling uh, is a was a Western Canadian, you know, uh, cultural staple uh, right through the right through the fifties, sixties, seventies. I used to watch it with my my, my grandfather actually because he he had been watching Stu's product ever since the ever since the fifties. Uh, and I watched it with my dad, and it's 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 just one of those. It was such a a cultural staple of um of certainly western canada and then of course the legend of stampede wrestling went really went all over the world uh, uh but you know so i was so i was a fan first and foremost and then uh you know as life progressed i, I became a journalist i, I was uh, i was a writer for the calgary herald uh, i was doing an internship at the calgary herald in the summer of uh summer in or sorry, May of 1999, actually, when when uh, Owen Hart died in Kansas City wrestling ring, and I'm there in, in Calgary, the home of the hearts uh, The next day, they uh, they sent me over to the Hart House to cause, as, a, as a you know cover porter to cover this story. So it's quite surreal. Suddenly, I'm there at the Hart House, and I'm surrounded by you know the Hart family and all these other wrestlers that are showing up, and these guys that I grew up watching. You know, and I follow I follow Bret Hart and Owen Hart and you know, the British Bulldogs and everything and followed their careers closely. And as they, as they, you know, kind of graduated stampede wrestling and, you know, went to the WWF and, uh, suddenly I'm there and this, it's this tragic time and I'm covering this story with, with the family. And it was the, it was the, uh, if you recall, that was the biggest news story of, of, of the day at that time, there was no bigger story in the world. I mean, media from all over the world flocked to that story of the wrestler that, you know, died in the in the in the, the mishap in the ring in Kansas City there, and of course it was a huge story in uh, in Calgary because the you know we they, the Hart family was such a was such a you know celebrity family in Calgary and had been for decades. So so it's this major story and and I'm sitting there and I'm talking to the Hearts and I'm talking to all these different wrestlers, you know, surrounded by surrounded by reporters coming from all over the world. I mean, they they had somebody from good morning, America and entertainment tonight coming in and, you know, the CBCs and NBC, ABC people are, reporters are coming in from all over the world that day. But I kind of, uh, I I think I understood something about the, the wrestling world and the hearts, the world of the hearts and who the hearts were and, and their legacy, with stampede wrestling. I understood something that maybe the other reporters around me that day didn't. And, uh, and so I got to know the family a little bit, and, and they and uh, you know this was an ongoing story, of course. This went on and on as as the, as the Hart sued Vince McMahon, and you know the Hart the heart family was torn apart. The story went on and on and on, and, and the saga of the Hart family went on for you know years afterwards. And it kind of, kind of became my my story at the Herald by and large. And the more I covered it, the more I got to know the Hart family they they kinda came to, you know, know me and I think some of them they trusted me and they liked me. Uh and I got to and I got to know more about the, the 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 amazing story of this family and this stampede and you know the inside story of Stampede Wrestling and I just thought, you know, this is this is an epic this is an epic story. I, I thought I would see it like a it's it's almost like a movie it's almost almost like a movie. It's like the godfather of wrestling. And I, and I thought to myself, like, this is this is an incredible book. I have to write this book. And so that's what, you know, that's what uh, uh, provoked me to start writing the book.
0: So two things I just want to touch on. Uh, yeah, the day that Owen passed away, it's crazy because I'll never forget it. We were out at my cabin and my cabin or my parents' cabin, however you want to phrase it, is about an hour and a half away from Winnipeg. And this is back in the day of the old uh, rabbit ear television sets, right? Because yeah. out there, there was no cable. There's no satellite. There's no... You had a phone line that mostly worked. <laughs> and you had yeah. you had CBC on with the rabbit ears, right? Yeah. And we were having like a late-night snack or whatever, and The National came on. And the first story on The National was Owen Hart passing away. Yeah. And all of us were like my, my nan and papa, my parents, my, my two brothers, myself, we, we just, everybody stopped. And it's, man, even thinking about it today, it's just, it's, it's incredible. Like just, first off, how many lives he touched is, you know, incalculable really. Yeah. But just how everything across Canada and a lot of parts of the world, just, just stopped and it was like wait what because you nobody had ever like wh- what do you say everybody's in shock and disbelief and yeah i, I can it was, only imagine it was an absolute shock. Yeah. oh and i i only i i couldn't even put myself in your shoes as like okay here you go you know <laughs> get in there and get us a story that's a, that's insane
7: yeah it was something and it was and you talk about the shock of that day for you and for the whole world that day really whether you're a wrestling fan or not everybody gravitated to that story that day because it was such a sensational and a tragic and tragic story uh and i was in ground zero and just having and having you know grown up with these guys watching these guys as my heroes the hart family and david boy smith and all these people just being there that day you know i'm really well very well aware of who Stu hart was as well from watching uh, from watching stampede wrestling and uh you know, I'd seen the documentary that came out a couple of years before that or a year before that or whatever, Wrestling with Shadows. Yes,
0: that Wrestling with Shadows, really, yeah.
7: Yeah, and that gave you a really in depth view of who, Star, who, Stu Hart, who Stu Hart was and uh, what a formidable character he was. And, uh, you know, he was just thought, you thought of him as this man, of this powerful, strong man. And I remember being at the Hart House that day and you know, talking to talking to the family, talking to all the brothers and sisters of the Hart family and talking to the different wrestlers. And I was there for a couple hours, really. They, they welcomed all the media into their home and they were so gracious And, and as, as they were suffering. Uh, but for the longest time, you didn't see Stu, you didn't see Helen. Uh, we were there, you know, Ed Whalen came around, the announcer for Stampede Wrestling. Yes. And, and, you know, I'm meeting all these people and talking to these people. And then suddenly uh, they... Stu and Helen came down the stairs. Everybody was in the Hart's, the uh, you know, the, big, the heart Mansion, living room, basically, and uh, they came down the stairs from from their from, the, from their bedroom. They'd been up in the, you know, their bedroom, you know, convening, I guess, and they're suffering over the loss of the youngest son. And they came down the stairs, and it was such a powerful moment. There was such, you know, there was such vulnerability in them. Uh, you know, Helen just seemed crushed and in shock. Uh, and Stu, this big, powerful man. I mean, the same. You know, his eyes, you know, were glassy. Sort of. It looked like he maybe been crying. And he came. And he came down. And he was just. I don't know. There was, It was such a powerful moment. I, I hope I'm describing it. Uh, you know, doing justice to the moment that it was because it was just. A, it was just a powerful, poignant moment to see this powerful man coming down the stairs, literally crushed by what it, by what had just happened.
0: It's, you know you were there and even hearing you describe it, I can only imagine right. What it was like, what the, what the feeling was in the room and just, you, you know, you, you, you get so used to seeing these people on television, you know, through the years in different, you know, whether it's in the ring or it's interviews or it's what, you know, how many times do you see Stu Hart on CBC just as in a news program, right. Yeah. A- away from whether you're talking about Calgary stampede or whatever. Not even just specifically wrestling. You know, we spend so much time getting to know these people and and then something like this happens and it's like, they're almost not, they're almost unrecognizable because it's like, this is not who I'm used to seeing, right? This is a totally different side from, you know, the larger than life's too hard. Now he's, now he's just a father who lost a child. It's, it's heartbreaking.
7: It really was there was this one point there uh you know the, the, i think it was set up maybe a little bit set up as a photo op uh but you know Stu comes downstairs and and brett had just arrived at the house he, came, he showed up on his motorcycle i believe and you know everybody kind of you know clears the room for brett hart to come in and everything and and uh at one point, he, he they, they come. I, th- I believe they went into the you know the famous dining room where they would host all the wrestlers and have their big dinners with the, the Hart family and everything. And they yep. went in there and they had some photo albums out, family photo albums, and Stu's you know going through the photo albums and looking at pictures of Owen, and he's you know he's tearing up a little bit, uh, as much as it's possible for a man like Stu to tear up, and because uh, he was a tough tough man. And, uh, and Brett came, came up behind him and put his, and Brett was tearing up and he put his, uh, he put his hand on Stu's shoulder and Stu touched Brett's hand. And it was just, a uh, yeah, I'll never forget that picture as well. And it, which circulated all, all over the world. Uh, it was just such a power. Yeah. It was just, it just, uh, you know, they, they say sometimes a picture can say a thousand words and that was, that was one of those pictures. Just a powerful, powerful thing.
0: So when you were getting the idea together to do this book, did you have an issue getting into the past of Stampede Wrestling? Did you have any roadblocks that prevented you from getting information? Was there anything? Because in Canada, maybe not so much nowadays, but definitely still back then, kayfabe was was a big deal still.
7: It's Still happening, yeah. Like when I talked to Archie the Stomper Goldie, for example, he didn't give me much. He was K kay- you know, it was over the phone, and he was in, uh, he was in, where the heck was he living at that time? Somewhere in the south, somewhere in the southern states, anyway, and. And he, yeah, he didn't get any much like he was he had the kayfabe mentality yeah going. yeah yeah but no uh I don't know I think it's because I was a reporter I had some you know I had some legitimacy to me because I was a reporter with the Calgary Herald and and I started to get to know these people through the hearts and so you know some of these different wrestlers so for the most part people opened up to me the Hart family certainly opened up to me originally I thought you know I just want to write a book about the death of Owen Hart because that's such a powerful moment and uh, and then you know, sort of the time passed on that, and 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 uh, and then I just kept doing stories about the Hart family. And one day I sat down with Bruce Hart, actually one of the one of the you know Stu's sons, who had been a wrestler in Stampede Wrestling. And I sat down with Bruce Hart in a restaurant one night, and we talked for like three and a half hours. I just tape, pressed tape on the tape recorder, and we we taped, and just and taped, and taped. And he just told me the whole story. So not. A, a, a large portion of the family story and the stampede wrestling story and and i just thought man this is an incredible story and i'd had some great talks with uh, with uh, N- 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 natty knightheart and everything and i just thought yeah i have to i, I this is a bigger story than just the, the story of Owen Hart. i want to tell the entire story of, of the entire history of stampede wrestling and which you know the hearts are so ingrained in
0: so i guess um in terms
7: of story, on I cut you, I I, I, I went off track a little that's bit. Okay. So, hey, uh, that's okay.
0: Hey, that's all right.
7: Yeah, so so yeah, I didn't get I didn't get a lot of resistance. I got a lot of I got a lot of a little bit of resistance here and there and people that didn't you know, there's the odd person and wrestling's full of, you know, as we know, wrestling's full of a lot of bullshitters as well. So yes, you know, sure. I, I got some people that, you know, told me stories that were really dubious. And 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 I really treated it like I want the true story. So I so I tried to I treated it like a reporter. I, I didn't just take one person's word for a story. Like I got I got the perspective from as many different people as I could, you know, in different situations. Um, and you know, and I spent a lot of time, you know, um, by the time I started writing the book, Stu had already passed away and Helen had passed away. I met them when Owen died and I met them a couple times after that, but I never really got to interview them specifically for the book. But there were so many, you know, on-record interviews that they had done over the years that I, was, that I was able to get into their side of things, and uh, yeah, I just, uh, I, I, I had a lot of people that really opened up, opened up for me, and then a lot of people that kind of, you know, gave, gave me the kayfabe stuff, and I, and I had to investigate a little bit to find out the true story about it, and and uh, yeah, so it was a challenging book, uh, and it was sort of my just my, my hobby for about two and a half years there. It was just my hobby. I would find different wrestlers to interview on the weekend, and I would go transcribe their interviews, and I was just compiling these interviews, thinking this is going to be a great book. Uh, and then, and then when I got the book deal, suddenly I had you know I had four months to turn in the first draft. So <laughs>
6: I'm
7: like, oh boy, yeah, it was it was crazy. And then I was like, okay, now's now's the time to start. You know, and I still I still had interviews to do, I still had research to compile. So I was just like, it was uh, yeah, it was it was an intense time, but yeah, I got it, I got her done. So
0: I got to ask, and I'd be ridiculous if I didn't. Did you know what you had when you had finished writing? D- like, did did it hit you like how? I don't know how how complete of a story you had assembled, or or is this something where, you know, you you finish the book and you you take some time away from it, and then you know, people start you know. Um... No, I think
7: I knew. I think I knew that I had a really you know without. Not trying to sound like, you know, blow my own horny or anything like that, but I, th- I really.
0: Did no, no, feel no, like... no, no. Please put yourself over. It is a wrestling <laughs> <laughs> podcast after all.
7: Yeah. I really feel like I had a powerful story. I went in knowing I had a powerful story to tell. Uh, and and I, I almost, I really did see it as, as not just a, a history, not just a. A lot of wrestling books, you know, are either just sort of encyclopedias of what happened, or they're sort of, you know, these biased accounts by wrestlers telling their side of the story trying to yes. bury all the enemies and stuff and and i really wanted to tell to tell a journalistic story um but also i, I had a, like a cinematic vision for it too because i do think it's a it's a really powerful story it's 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 not just a story about wrestling it's a story about family um and a family business and what happens to the family business when it becomes really corporate when things when the, the, the business that they're in becomes incredibly corporate and yeah that's the story that i was sort of telling i i when i when i joke that it's the, when i say it's the godfather i saw it as the godfather of the, of the wrestling world i'm only half joking i do think there's a godfather you know the godfather's all about family and the and, and how family is connected and, and to to this this the, you know the shady business of the mafia well the heart family is connected to the crazy the crazy business this crazy sort of carnival business of the wrestling world and and it's it's a and they love the business and it, and it made the family in a lot of ways, but it also broke the family in a lot of ways. It's a real it's, it's there's a real tragic element to the story.
0: It's interesting that you say that last portion there that it made the family, but it also broke the family, and that's one of my favorite books in wrestling, or you know, even just in general, is is uh, Bret Hart's book, and where you know he really. He goes into detail about how, you know, events inside of Stampede Wrestling really put him at odds with the other brothers, right? When they had the restart, and we'll get into that later, uh, when there was the failed restart, how that started a bunch of conflict. Obviously, the Owen Hart stuff just blew everybody apart. But, uh, yeah, it's Stampede Wrestling is was much more than just, you, you know... Um, a wrestling organization it was much more than just this event or this time in in, in canada's history really that brought certain people together and, and maybe it meant something maybe didn't know this thing brought generations of people together it, it it helped foster the relationships of generations of people including the family itself and and I mean, what else can you say? If an organization can do something like that, it, it has to stand at least high on the shoulders of the, some of the most influential organizations of all time in, in professional wrestling.
7: It really is. And, and that's another reason I wanted to tell the Stampede Wrestling story too. Because, you know, Calgary, especially in the in the heyday of Stampede Wrestling, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, Calgary, I mean, it's not it's not Los Angeles, it's not New York, and it's not it's not Toronto and it's not Montreal like the Calgary was considered a bit of a backwater you know not a lot of people knew about Stampede Wrestling Um, I mean a lot to a lot of people they only heard about Stampede Wrestling once Owen and Brett you know were in the WWF and and they had their little feud they had their giant feud there yes you know Gorilla Monsoon and Jerry Lawler and all these guys would be talking about Stampede Wrestling and the legacy of Stu Hart and and all that kind of stuff so I think uh, the most wrestling fans around the world know Stampede Wrestling that way they don't know the actual stampede wrestling and the actual greatness of stampede wrestling. Um, and that's something I really wanted to get across too. And, and actually stampede wrestling was, was very, uh, for this little kind of backwoods territory, which it was in, in so many ways. It was so influential in so many ways. If you look at some of the guys that came out of stampede wrestling, like the dynamite kid is a huge, huge one that just revolutionized the wrestling business. Um, Wayne Coleman, superstar Billy Graham, who went on to be superstar Billy Graham, got yeah. started in Stampede Wrestling, and I mean, this this is the guy that was the prototype that sort of influenced, you know, Hulk Hogan and Jesse the Body Ventura, like, how much more influential can you get in the DNA of wrestling than that?
0: Well, even, um, you know, even you know, you have... Guys like
7: Abdullah the Butcher, he didn't get started in Stampede Wrestling, but he had some of his early, you know, matches and really built himself in a lot of ways in Stampede Wrestling, and just uh it was just such an influential territory in so many ways one thing i always i when i'm talking about the influence of stampede wrestling i always think about if you look at the the the, the greatest tragedies um you know uh, in wrestling history you've got you've got benoit you've got you know or the greatest scandals i guess in wrestling you've got you the, the benoit tragedy yep. the know Hart tragedy and the screw job in montreal and these were, the I mean, these are centered around Stampede Wrestling guys, if you want to look at how influential Stampede Wrestling was. And then if you look at, and I think you can include the Dynamite Kid in there, too, not as a tragedy, but in the way he influenced sort of the high-flying, you know, small, small, smaller wrestlers that, that we see today. I mean, he was the first one that ushered that stuff into North America in, in, in a large way. And, yeah, and a Stampede Wrestling guy.
0: Well, and, and even somebody like uh, uh... Liger from Japan, who really totally got his, you know, big break, if you will, in Calgary. A lot of the times, a lot of the times, that's what they would do. New Japan would send talent over that needed that seasoning, needed that, you know, international flavor. What better place would there be than Calgary? Really, with the amount of talent that you named, like six, seven top dog names in wrestling, you also had guys like you had Bad News Allen was there and he was just incredible talent. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't just the talent but it was also how they were presented, how they were allowed to wrestle there. It was just it was something totally different. It was that very much that NWA meets uh like not the performance part of WWF but that, you know, the larger scale events Right, you had a lot of the events held with this Calgary Stampede, for example. Yeah. So we're not talking like you're not working in front of ten people in some barn somewhere. I know that's always the the common misconception about, you know, independent shows in Canada, for mm-hmm. example. That was not what this was. And you really had such an influx of international talent and talent that wanted to come here, learn the style, learn what it was to, you know, wrestle for this monster stew heart if you will
7: yeah it was a training ground it was it was it was the, it was a backwater sort of territory but people were sent to you know young junior wrestlers up and coming green guys were sent to stampede wrestling uh for for two reasons one to go down to that dungeon and
4: train
0: yeah. <laughs> yes not
7: necessarily stew but not always stew but sometimes stew's son or stew's you know the guys who worked with Stew or whatever. But often you you go down there and you'd be treated to being uh, stretched and tortured and twisted into a pretzel by Stu, and that was sort of a rite of passage. That you you know if you were going to make it in this world in this wrestling world, you had to be able to survive that for one thing. And then the Stampede Wrestling territory itself was another was another sort of hurdle because it was a smaller territory, so you could go there and sort of you know kind of feel your way, make your you know kind of build yourself up and. Kind of get your feet wet as a wrestler, uh, and then it, it was also like such a harsh territory because you had to and to survive that territory was difficult. Just because you know you're in the, you're in the Canadian prairies, it's the, the territory for, is largely in Alberta and Saskatchewan. So you you'd go you'd go on these you know these prairie skating rink roads, go, sort of going around the, the Stampede Loop week after week, and you know the, the key towns were always you know uh, Calgary, Edmonton. Uh, Saskatoon Regine and then little, you know, the Medicine Hats and the towns in between, sort of thing, um, and around and around and around that loop, and you know, just putting in hundreds of miles each day uh, on these, you know, these days. There were so many car crashes in the history of Stampede Wrestling. Yes, that's you know, true. Yeah, fatal accidents and everything. You know, uh, just driving around those those sort of skating rink roads. You know, uh, and be so and, and just and just to live in that, you know, to be able to survive that. It, it was a, it's kind of a harsh working environment, and that's sort of the way guys were sent in there to, to, to sort of break into the business. If you can survive Stu, and you can survive Stu's territory, then you, you can maybe survive this business.
0: It's funny you're talking about the travel. Uh, later in this program, I have a guest on, and we go into detail about one of their um, tour dates or tour schedules, if you will, and it's about as close to the Tamp- Stampede Listen to me talk, Jesus! The Stampede Wrestling tour schedule is you're ever going to get in, in modern terms of it, but the amount of miles traveled to go from you know small town to small town is incredible, and we get into that later in the program. But it's it's funny, you know, you hear guys talking about how it was back in the '80s or the '70s. I know that Canada's progressed 40 years, but travel has not progressed that much, and we still have a lot of the same weather conditions, especially in, in Calgary, uh, into the BC area as well. Weather out there can change on a dime. And when you're, when you're eight hours into a 10 hour car ride and you're stuck in the middle of a snowstorm, it's incredible that there hasn't been more tragedy and more accidents in in professional wrestling just from the travel time.
7: My parents still live in Saskatoon and I live in Calgary. Just, Just to drive back and forth. Like, I mean, you know, you want to know, you want to know what white knuckling is. Drive, drive that drive in, in the middle of a blizzard. Um, you know, it's it, it's 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 brutal. Uh,
3: and these guys did it week after week. You know, that kind of drive.
0: I was just gonna, gonna say, n- now do that drive with about ten ornery wrestlers in the vehicle. Yeah. <laughs>
7: no doubt, or you know, a drunk Harley race at the wheel. Oh or Jesus Christ! <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> so I guess uh, to to further contextualize the story of stampy wrestling, we should kind of go to the start of how it all came together. Um, so we're going to backtrack a little bit, a couple of years, if you will, to 1947. Uh, so 1947, uh, was when Stu Hart had traveled, uh, or was wrestling sorry I should say in San Antonio and, uh, had the idea, I guess, was that with, uh, with Larry Tillman, where he had the idea of starting his own promotion?
7: Well, the, the way I understand it, so, so Stu's, you know, he's, he, he came out of the, uh, his time in the, uh, you know, in the armed forces and during, uh, during the World War II. Yeah, when he was with uh, the Navy. And, and then he, he, he went to New York, and he established himself in New York. He kind of, he, he, you know, he fought in Madison Square Garden. I think he fought Gorgeous George and Killer Kowalski and, the, you know, the names of the day. Uh, so he established himself as a name there. And as far as I know, I, I don't think it was San Antonio. I think he was working out of, uh, in 47, 48, he was working out of Great Falls. I might be wrong about that now. You maybe you've challenged me here. But I think, I thought he was working out of Great Falls, Montana. Yeah. With, yeah, Larry Tillman and uh, who was the other guy? Uh, uh, Jerry Meeker.
0: Yes, you're correct. Uh, yes. Yeah, it was Montana where he was yeah. he was doing the booking as well. So I guess that's maybe where maybe where the seed was planted.
7: Yeah, well, well, what happened was he actually. So he's working for these guys. He's wrestling for for Tillman and uh, and Meeker, but at the same time he kind of runs afoul of them as well. It must have been a w- very weird situation because uh, Tillman and Meeker they basically had a lock on on Western Canada, and it was it was a pretty it was a bigger territory then, too. It wasn't just Alberta and Saskatchewan. They were they you know they, they had their tentacles in Great Falls and yeah a little bit further further out, um, but. They were neglecting Edmonton. They considered, it, I guess, they considered it sort of a sec you know, third rate market or something like that. And so they weren't doing a lot of shows in Edmonton. Meanwhile, Stu is an Edmonton kid, and he's a name. But we know that he, you know, he's this athlete. You know, the, the people of Edmonton know him as the the boy, the, the you know, the hometown boy that made good in New York, sort of thing. So uh, the police chief and the mayor of Edmonton actually. Reached out to Stu, and they said, "Listen, the, the Tillman and Meeker aren't, aren't booking shows here in Edmonton that much. Why don't we start? You should. We would like you to start up a grassroots, you know, hometown wrestling promotion. We want you to come in and do that." So he did come in and do that, and he started up Klondike Wrestling. It That's was right, Klondike Wrestling. When he started it in Edmonton in '48, I believe. But he made he did piss off Tillman and Meeker, who he was still working for it in in a, some capacity because he was threatening their, you know, sort of lock they felt that they had on the territory.
0: So correct me if I'm wrong. When, when Stewart established Klondike wrestling, because he was worried about Tillman and Meeker, that's why he originally joined with the NWA, correct?
7: I I don't think that's why. I mean, I think ultimately that's why, but I don't think he joined the
0: NWA. I'm not, uh, sorry, I should rephrase. I'm not saying specifically because of those two, but because they had such a stranglehold on the surrounding territories that Stu had wanted to open up, I guess that's kind of maybe that pushed him towards the direction of the NWA.
7: I think maybe, and I think also it was just beneficial if you're going to be a promoter, you want to be with the NWA, you want to be in that organization because they're going to give you access to the you know the big names, the champs and the champions and everything that you want to bring in.
0: So, just in case uh, anybody who's listening is not familiar with the NWA how it used to be, uh, obviously quite different than it is in today's day and age. Uh the NWA had a traveling champion and so you would have it would it be Harley Race or it'd be Ric Flair, just to note, you know, just a couple of the bigger names. And they would go to each territory and they would, you know, wrestle whoever the local top competitor was, and they would have a series of matches and obviously the the nwa title would never switch there was uh quite the bounty attached to it so yeah. no no champion was it 25 grand if i'm not mistaken
7: i'm not sure about that but yeah it so, was, so, that that's it, and that was the draw of getting there. and you you know also just not just the champ but some of the bigger names as well you could get them to come in and Stu always wanted them to come in for once he moved to Calgary, we're getting a, a little bit ahead of ourselves here because he was—we're talking Edmonton Klondike wrestling. But once he established himself in Calgary and really started establishing the Stampede wrestling thing, um, the, the, the time of the Calgary Stampede—that was like Stu's WrestleMania. He wanted to get every—he wanted to throw all the talent and all the big names he could at, at that that kind of moment. So that's when he would try to pay, you know pay to get Harley Race, Andre the Giant, that sort of thing. But you needed to—it it helped greatly. Getting that to be part of the, uh, you know, National Wrestling Alliance.
0: So from we're talking nineteen forty eight till early fifty one, maybe fifty two. He's running um, Klondike Wrestling out of Edmonton.
7: Yeah, he's running Klundick wrestling out of out of Edmonton and sort of running a foul of of, of uh, Tillman and Meeker at that time and they consider this like a threat to their, you know, dominance in Western Canada. And it wasn't just Stu, there was a lot of other promoters that were trying. this territory was in flux from what I understand. There was a lot of promoters that were trying to you know, vultures that were circling trying to get in there. But Stu had the official sort of welcome that he I mean he, like I say he, he had the uh the mayor of Edmonton the police chief of Edmonton that wanted him to come in and do this because Tillman and Meeker were under-serving the, the Edmonton market you know? uh... and then and then there was a guy that Tillman and Meeker were working with a guy by the name of uh, Darby Melnick who ran shows in Calgary um and there was a situation that happened I'm not sure when it would have been 1949-50 maybe Melnick beat up, beat somebody up outside of a restaurant. There was a, a fight outside of a restaurant. Melnick, you know, beat this guy so bad that he was going to be charged with manslaughter. So, um, so this sort of threatens this kind of threatens the Calgary territory. And Tillman, I believe it was Tillman, buys out uh, uh, Melnick's share of of, the, of buy, buys out Melnick's you know share share of the Calgary part of the territory, so that he can go in there and start promoting matches in. Um, in Calgary, and he does that because he wants to prevent Stu from expanding, because Stu, because Klondike Wrestling is, you know, he's having a lot of success with Klondike Wrestling in Edmonton, and uh, Tillman doesn't want to him to expand in, into across Alberta, and he doesn't want it, him to get into Calgary. So, uh, yeah, so so they kind of buy out Melnick's part, uh, Calgary territory there, so they can stop Stu from coming in. And then Tillman also tried to bully Stu and sort of get you know co- be a co-promoter with Klonda in Klondike wrestling as well. There was a real a little bit of a battle they were having there. And Stu wouldn't be bullied, of course.
0: The other name that I have came across and I found super interesting was that was Vern Gagne, and I didn't realize how how far his reach. Went in terms of how far it went into Canada. I I always knew that he ran well, especially with the AWA was like Winnipeg, Manitoba in general was a, was a big stronghold of of uh, AWA. But when Vern was with the NWA, uh, he was working with Stu Hart, and I was just it. I don't know if I was surprised to hear that he was kind of partnering up with Stu. Maybe that's not the right word. I guess, there obviously, there's the NWA affiliation. But maybe it makes a little bit more sense, too, in this whole you know, puzzle that we have right now of who does Stu have in his back pocket to help him out to kind of keep other promotions from running territories that, or cities that he's trying to establish for his territory. And, and I was just surprised to come across Vergani as one of those names.
7: I didn't know too. Much, I don't know too much about if, if he did do some work with Vern Gagne. I I don't know if he how extensive that was or how often they did it. Or I don't. I, I hadn't heard too much about that actually.
0: It was uh, from from my understanding, at least, it was mostly dealing with uh, with Manitoba and Saskatchewan. But still, if, if you if you're trying sense, if you're trying to box some other people out, you know Montana geographically speaking it's not too far away from those provinces yeah. so it, 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 it what once again see you get you get into the history of things and you and you start really looking at it you huh you know you come across that name every once in a while you're like wait a minute and then you go down the rabbit hole and now you're reading, you know, six, seven different things and you forgot what you even started on. But yeah, just yeah. just one of those things that uh, that I found interesting in, in looking into it. Wow, now you, got me,
7: now you got me wanting to know more about Vern Gagne and Stu Hart and the kind of team up that would have been. Wow, that's not something I, I knew very much about. That's interesting. Hey, if,
0: if you could learn anything from me, I'm blown away. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to absorb, I'm being the sponge, if you will, right now in our conversation. Uh, so... Moving uh, forward in time a little bit, I want to talk about uh, when he f- was it amalgamated or when he bought out uh, Big Time Wrestling. Uh, how yeah, did how did that so come from
7: You're talking about when he moves into Calgary. Right?
0: That's correct. Yes.
7: Yeah. So finally, in '51, I think so. So Stu and Tillman have basically been headbutting over this ter- This, you know, the expansion of this territory and Stu's, you know, Stu's place in the territory. Um, yeah, they're kind of headbutting, but going back and forth from, from forty eight to fifty one, and I think Tillman just gets sick of the fight after a while. From what I understand, uh, he just decides, you know, he's it, Stu makes him an offer, which was a very, uh, very uh, great offer, more than the territory it was worth at that time. Paid him fifty thousand um, dollars, and he was doing the honorable thing, apparently, from what Ross Hart has told me, because uh, you know he had enough of it. He was had enough of an expansion and enough respect and everything. He could probably could have just, you know, put Tillman out of business, but he actually did the honorable thing and he bought Tillman out for $50,000. Uh, and then he establishes big time wrestling, which is Calgary based. And it all comes together in 51 at that time. He, he, you know, he, he, he comes into Calgary, comes in with, with big time wrestling, which would eventually morph into stampede wrestling. Um, uh, has the you know one of the, their big opening shows uh, is it on the Stampede Grounds, which would be the home of Stampede Wrestling? Yes, uh, the Victoria Pavilion and the Stampede Corral, uh, and it, you know that first match or the or the first you know they their opening night on the Stampede Grounds in '51, they they bring in a French Canadian strongman by the name of uh, Paul Jean who one you know just as a, as an attraction sort of thing, he carries a horse up a ladder. <laughs> and a split. You know, so it's a, you know, but they had this big, huge, sold out match in, in the corral, and you know, so Stu really comes into Calgary uh, with a boot with a bang, uh, and then it's it's that it's later that same summer that he he buys the Hart Mansion as well, which becomes like ground zero for the Hart family, right? That this is the sort of the base of operations of Stampede Wrestling. This is where you know, the famous dungeons in the basement. Uh, he raises his family; his, you know, a family of twelve kids eventually. Uh, raises them all, this is sort of so he's really, you know, he's established his roots, uh, he started out in Edmonton in 48 there and then he was an Edmonton kid but yeah, by 51, you know big time wrestling, and stampede wrestling is, is centered in Calgary from there on in.
0: So I'm assuming that he would have dropped the name Klondike Wrestling in, in favor of big time wrestling because of the name recognition and, and the larger territory that it, that it would have encumbered encompass that's a bit
7: foggy for me so when he was doing klondike wrestling he was co-promoting with a guy in edmonton by the name of al oming uh you know bodybuilding friend of his who had also been a wrestler uh, and i think wrestled a little bit at that time still uh and so al oming was oming was promoting the klondike wrestling but yeah eventually i'm not i'm foggy about when it actually happened but eventually you know klondike wrestling and big time wrestling as far as i can tell just become one you know, because the records are so foggy and it's hard to find exactly what happened and there's conflicting accounts and everything. But as far as I know, like, yeah, he, he, Big Time Wrestling becomes the base and Klondike just becomes a part of it.
0: So, and the other name that uh, the promotion was known under was Wildcat Wrestling. And I, I didn't know a whole lot about that. I, I assume that that was just maybe a transition between Big Time and Stampede
7: yeah so so a lot of things uh, transpire uh, a big thing that happens is is so so, so he's running big time wrestling uh, big time wrestling in, in uh, from 51 then in 56 uh, you know the w- Western Canada finally gets TV you know Toronto had had TV since the, you know from the early 50s I think but you know for a long time there they didn't Canada or Calgary didn't have its own TV station they finally get their own TV station in 54 um and when t- TV revolutionizes professional wrestling, by the way, because when TV comes along, the first TV stars—I mean, it's people like Lucille Ball and Jackie Gleason and, and Gorgeous George—like yes. wrestlers are the are the big, are, are among the first TV stars. You know, talk to your grandpa and grandma, and, and they'll, they'll usually say, oh, I remember watching wrestling as a—you know—among the, the, the first TV shows we ever watched. Wrestling was a big deal. So it was a huge deal in '56 when Stu gets a TV deal with the Calgary Station. Um, and, and so he so big time wrestling becomes a fixture of Calgary TV and you know gets broadcast all, all over the place other places as well uh, and so he's got he's got uh, two TV shows uh, sort of a, a promotional show just a 15-minute promo show called Meet the wrestlers and then Mad time which is the, which is the big show um, it's uh, locally produced by Calgary's you know what, what is state global TV in Calgary uh, and it gets, his sort of right hand Stu's right hand man is, is a wrestler by the name of uh, a wrestler promoter by the name of Sam Manneker who comes in and he's you know Keith Hart described him as a maestro the way he you know conducted a wrestling show sort of thing he's sort of the early he's sort of Ed Whalen of Stampede Wrestling before
0: before Ed Whalen yeah Sam
7: Manneker was like the, the focal point he was the man he was the guy who could you know be the announcer in the show and have the rapport with the wrestlers and, and whatnot um <clears throat> And, you know it was a super successful show for a while there these, these these are really high times and you know Stu even purchases his own plane so that he can he can promote shows as far away as Alaska because that's how how big it had gotten at one point there um, uh, and then and then something it's this is the oddest thing but is actually got mad at Stu felt, felt he was owed a bigger piece of the pie and he jumped ship at one point but the show chugs on and keeps doing well and then in 1960 uh, Iron Mike DiBiase, who is the father of Ted, the Million Dollar Man DiBiase, yep. he, he's wrestling there. He's on the show, and it, it's so odd that this is a scandal when you think about you know
0: <laughs> all the scandals that have happened. In, in, you know, yeah. not not even just specifically in wrestling, but generally speaking.
7: It's, it's so bizarre, but he, his big thing that he says, uh, you know, he's being interviewed, he says, if brains were dynamite, the people of Calgary wouldn't be able to blow their
4: nose.
7: <laughs> you know, that's and that's it's, it's somehow in this era, this is a scandal. Uh, it's such a scandal that it causes Stu to lose his TV license. He actually loses his license for a, for a time there, and it's, you know, it's, it, it's a real blow to, to big-time wrestling. But he quickly sort of bounces back, because he, there's another TV station in town. He gets a TV deal with them. Uh, and they relaunch it, which what is now today's CTV. He yes. starts, uh, he starts a new show then, and this one, this time, the show is actually called Big Time Wrestling, uh, and then it's a bona fide hit. Uh, and they, they entice you know Sam Meneker to come back as the, as the announcer, uh, and it's it's a, it's a big hit. Uh, but then again, in '62, Manekar leaves because this time he's he's punched in the nose on air by uh, the wrestler Iron Mike Sharp who goes all the way back to that. I, I'm sure you probably know the name, Iron Mike Sharp. Sharp, But he he, yeah, he punches Maneker in the nose, breaks his nose. Meneker is humiliated, and he's angry. And again, he thinks Stu's not paying him enough. And uh, he skips town, and this time he takes Stu's plane. I, I said earlier that Stu had a plane to yes. fly the wrestlers around. Stuff. He takes Stu's plane with him, and Stu tries to sue him. Uh, but, you know, Manneker says, well, I'm, I claims he's half owner of the plane. And maybe he was because he's, his name is actually on the registration. So Stu's unable to sue him. So, uh, you know, again, Manneker's the, the big star maker and he leaves, uh, Stu's lost his plane. So, so he starting to struggle a little bit. Uh, and then actually some interesting things happen here. Manneker's replacement is a guy by the name of Ernie Roth, who would later find huge fame in the WWF as the, as the, the grand wizard who is the manager in the seventies of superstar Billy Graham. So Ernie Roth comes along and he's, he's the, uh, he's the announcer for a little while. And he's also got a, you know, he's also got a real knack for, 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 for the TV. And he's, he's kind of doing what Manneker used to do, but he doesn't last long because CTV executives get wind of the fact that Ernie Roth is gay and they're scandalized by this. They don't want him in town. So they kind of drive him out of town. And the rumor is as well that Sam Manekar actually tipped off CTV. You know, bitter Sam Manekar tipped off the, the CTV executives that uh, that Roth. Yeah, because he was gave. pissed so, from so the from the business. Um. Yeah, I hope I'm not going going too. No,
0: no, here. God, no.
7: Yeah, they drive out. They drive out Roth, and uh, for a while there, they get another announcer, the sort of a big sportscaster in Calgary by the name of uh, Harry Viney. But it's the business is starting to suffer at this point. Uh, the TV show's not doing too well Stu's like kind of struggling to survive here he starts co-promoting with all-star wrestling in, in Vancouver but it's sort of a it's a deal which he's got the short end of the stick so he's not he's he's losing money left and right he's hemorrhaging money so by 64 he's again without a TV show and this is a terrible time for the hearts this is like the worst time the heart kids remember like living on you know clothes wearing clothes ill-fitting clothes from the Salvation Army and barely having enough to eat and the Hart family is really struggling at this point there, and then in it's in 1965 that Ed Whalen, who's such a star of you know this the star announcer of Stampede Wrestling that everybody kind of remembers now, uh, Ed Whalen is a local newscaster for Global TV, and he's friends with Stu, and that for their friendship goes all the way back to 1951 when he was just a young green kid Ed Whalen. He used to uh, be the announcer for some of the Saskatoon shows. So, so they go way back. And now Ed's, Ed's a big deal in Calgary as the newscaster. And he's got some clout with the TV station. He gets to another TV deal TV deal with Global TV. And they relaunch in 65 as Wildcat Wrestling. Um, and yeah, Wildcat Wrestling, it, it, they basically rebrand as, as uh, Stampede Wrestling in 67, 68. And they do so because it makes sense. Uh, that, that, you know, Stampede, Stu's promotion is totally ingrained within within the Calgary Stampede, so it just made you know, the matches are on the Calgary Stampede ground, so it makes sense to be Stampede Wrestling instead of Wildcat Wrestling. So, that's my incredibly long story for your 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 question, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an in-depth uh, situation.
0: Well, that's why we bring the experts into, uh, into a show <laughs> like this, because there's, and, and we had talked off-air about, you know, when you start looking into things and you start wanting to learn, you could, I could honestly read if we'll not talk about your book for a second, but I, you could have read, there's a couple other books on Stu Hart, and I think there's one other one on Stampede Wrestling, or you can go through news archives, or you can go through newspaper clippings, or whatever, and you may still not get that amount of detail. Right? It's just incredible. To, again, kudos to you for being able to to accumulate all of it. Yeah, it was, it was
7: a tough job, and, and it's hard too because, like you know, I'm a little embarrassed that I didn't know much about the Vern Gagne thing, but it's, it's, it's such an in depth thing, and things, and and uh, the and the records are foggy, and and, and you kind of have to go by people's memory, that's not always accurate, and and so uh, yeah, it was it's it was a lot of work and a lot of digging through like you know, TV station archives and Glenville museum archives. And, and to just, to, and you know, I worked at the Calgary Herald, so I could, I had free reign on the weekends of their archives and you would just, you just have to find this stuff out. And it was, it was really research intensive.
0: So when we, we, we now move forward in time, we're, we're in that 65, 66, 67, I think is when stampede wrestling as it would come to be known actually takes off. Um, so he, he has Stampede Wrestling, he has the affiliation still at this point with the NWA, mm. and really the, the crown jewel of Stampede Wrestling was the affiliation with uh, the Calgary Stampede. And yeah. for yeah, anybody who, and I talk about this a little bit later on the program with one of our other guests, but if you, whatever you think a Stampede is, times it by like 10. <laughs> Like and like anything you could possibly think that, that that would happen in in an event such as that, multiply that by about ten as well. Yeah,
7: it, it's this giant rodeo, basically. That you know, the Calgary's been you know it kind of put Calgary on the map in the earliest days. I mean, Calgary's uh, is is a town that you know, you know, got rich from a, from an oil boom. Uh, but you know, kind of in the early, but it, but it it really before that happened, its roots were it was sort of a rodeo, sort of you know, it's sort of a ranching, sort of. City, basically, it was you know, it was, it was a town of ranchmen, and uh and yeah, so so that that, that it had that sort of small town mentality, and and Stampede Wrestling had was so reflected that that's that sort of Western mentality. I always I said in my book at one point there that if the WWE WWF, if you want to compare it to, you know, Slick Arena Rock. Um Stampy wrestling was more like a, like a dirty old honky tonk, like a, like you know, like, a, like a show you'd see in a barn sort of thing where you you very much could expect a fight to break out next to the stage. You know, it was it was that sort of rough rough sort of environment, and you know, it, it, it was a, there was a crowd that wanted to see a good fight, a good rough fight, and uh, you know, the matches were held in the Victoria Pavilion, which you know I, I've seen. My wrestling matches in the Victoria Pavilion. I've also seen you know sheep shearing competitions. In the <laughs> Victoria Pavilion. It's very much a barn. It's because you know it's the middle of the Calgary Stampede, which is a rodeo. So it's an you know it's a, it's used for agricultural purposes, um, and it smelled like a barn too. You know, so so you got you got that whole mentality, that whole s- sort of mentality, uh, and then you've got you know Ed Whalen when he became aboard as the as the announcer of the show. He was a really respected Calgary guy. Very good friends with Stu um he was a you know local sportscaster local newscaster very respected in town uh and he had this sort of he was perfect for his time for that era because he was this sort he has sort of had this you know down home sort of almost hokey f- chip fl- flavor to the way he would he would announce you know he was things were you know a great match was like a ring-a-ding-dong dandy and and if there was a, you know, things that would be really hokey today, but it really hit home with the audience at the time. Or like if two uh, you know, wrestlers collided in the middle of the ring, it was like a malfunction. Malfunction
0: at the, junction. At the so, junction. I was just yeah, gonna say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
7: And, and you know, you know, in the middle of, you know, if, if, if there'd be a really good rally in, in in the middle of a match, how sweet it is, you yeah. know. And he, he, he you know, he, he had his sign off his every every week. That's it for another edition of Snappy Wrestling. Bye now, you know. He just sort of. Just this hokey sort of delivery he had. But it was so endearing and so charming. And he had this great rapport with the wrestlers, too. Certain wrestlers he would have such a, a funny rapport with. Uh, he was a witty guy, and he'd bring out the wit in the wrestlers as well. Uh, and so he, in many ways, became the face of Stampede Wrestling. Like, the hearts with the mainstays. Uh, and Ed Whalen was the mainstay. Everybody else, you know, the, the way the territory system worked, everybody else would come and go.
3: Very interchangeable. kid
7: who was, who was a pretty much a mainstay. But he would also, he'd be in Japan, he'd be here and there. Um, the mainstays of, you know, right back to the roots were, were Ed Whalen and, uh, and, uh, and the Hearts and Stu Hart.
0: So when, when Stu's running Stampede from the 60s into the 70s, it's my understanding that uh, they, he would take summers off of touring?
7: Yeah, actually, at that, that time he would do it. I I can't remember exactly when that stopped, but yeah, for the longest time there, for a year for a couple decades, he would, they, they would they would they would, run, they would go part way into the summer. Like the, the Calgary Stampede is usually like the first or second week of um, of July, so that would be you know, like I say, that was like the WrestleMania of 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 the Stampede wrestling. You know, he'd get like Harley Race in, or he'd get Andre the Giant in, or he would get you know, like celebrity referees would come in, Jack Dempsey, the boxer, and people like that. Yeah. And so everything would be thrown into that. And then after that big um, uh, Calgary Stampede match, you know, held during the Calgary Stampede is one of the attractions of the Calgary Stampede on the Stampede grounds, yeah, then he'd take the summers off, and then they'd start up again in September. And that stopped eventually. Like, when I was a kid, that was no longer happening. Like, when I was starting watching it in the 80s, 81, like, it was... It was all year round you'd have stampede wrestling but but yeah in the 70s and 60s and 70s they definitely did that
0: so and that was a stew call if I'm not mistaken right yeah I I I, and, I, if I want to say I read it in Brett's book that uh, during the summers that's when Stu really wanted to have the family time and they would go on family road trips um, various parts of Canada or whatever um, just it's interesting you again, the peek behind the curtain of, of Stu Hart, the wrestling promoter, the stretcher, the guy who makes guys Uh, scream in the dungeon. And then, Oh, I'm going to take the summers off and, and be a family man. Just the the, the dichotomy is incredible.
7: It really was. There was such a domestic side to Stu Hart too. He really was a family man. And he, uh, it wasn't just for uh, family vacations and, 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 and whatnot. He also had other, other business ventures. Like for a while there, there was a place, uh, like, called Clearwater Beach it was just sort of a, a hangout where people would come in there but 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 he owned that at one point there so he also had other business ventures that he sort of took care of over the summers as well but, but yeah he would he really was a family man he really was a domestic guy it's weird because the hearts have this memory of their dads you know screams coming up from the dungeon the, the kids thought it was funny and they would tape guys getting you know tortured down there in the dungeon guys crying and screaming begging for their lives and, you know, vomiting and whatever else he was making as their eyes, you know, bloodshot eyes popped out of their heads. <laughs> whatever Stu was making happen down there. Uh, and then at the same time, then he'd come up and, and he, yeah, he had this domestic side. He was like, cause Helen was actually the one who would take care of the business side of things. She'd be up in their office there, you know, do a hand crunching the numbers and all this stuff. And what whereas Stu, he would come up there and he, he, you know, he used to do Helen and I think the girl, his daughters too, he'd do their hair and their nails Uh, Like, imagine that. He was the beautician of the family as well, you know, and and he would do, and he would do, uh, you know, they had this giant industrial kitchen in in the heart mansion there. So he would, you know, he would love to make a huge feast. Uh, So he would do that. He'd be in that kitchen all the time doing that as well.
0: I think it was Jim Cornette, might have coined the phrase, he's the most civilized sadist he ever met.
7: <laughs> That's, that sounds like something Jim Corden ever said. It's very out. It's very uh yeah.
0: So, as we move forward into uh, the later years, into the 70, late 70s, um, in, into the early 80s, is that when Stu kind of started to take his foot off the Stampede Wrestling a little bit? That's when he, he let uh, Bruce and Keith handle uh, aspects of it?
7: A little bit, yeah. He was, I mean as I said, Stampede Wrestling, right throughout its entire history, like going back to the big time days, like, you know, I walked you through some of the ups and downs, like it was a boom and bust business. And and Helen never wanted to be in the business in the first place. Like she loved Stu. So she went where
0: she tolerated it.
7: She tolerated it. And it's sort of like she hated it. She hated the business the entire time and sort of a dark secret of the family. She kind of became an alcoholic working up there in the office and you know, sipping the drinks to sort of be able to tolerate what she was handling. You know, what she was living through. Uh, she hated the business so often. She was on stew to sort of get, sort of get out of the business. So I think that's. And he was getting older by by 19, the seventies too. So he was starting to take his foot off the gas a little bit. And his kids were growing up there. You know, and they were starting to get, they were starting to get get into the business as well. And and especially Bruce. Kind of had these grand aspirations, I think, to take over, you know, to take take the business from his father and to, you know, to run it into the future. Yeah. So he, but Stu still kept at least, especially in the seventies, Stu was very active in it as well. And him and Bruce would also would often get into you know headbutting over how things were going to go.
0: So when we we move it from the seventies, now we move into the eighties. I believe it was 82 is when Stampede withdrew from the NWA. Um, But I I can never find out why they did. I've seen a a ton of transcripts of the NWA meetings, and I know that there was a lot of, not issues, but there was a lot of, uh, I don't know what the word you want to look for, Um, help requested from the NWA for Stu Hart in terms of uh, getting in American wrestlers, because at that time, you know, dealing with papers was a big thing. It's not as free of a a working environment as it is today uh, for for American wrestlers. And I actually have another guest of mine later in the program that talks about that specifically. But, so I I wonder if there was a little bit of friction from, you know, maybe he's kind of the redheaded stepchild of the NWA. I think
7: he was. I think he was. I don't think they were serving him very well. I think that... uh... You know, again, because Calgary had that reputation as being sort of backwater territory, like maybe you know Rick Flair didn't want to go there. If you look at the programs, if you look at those big Stampede Calgary Stampede programs for years and years in the '70s, you'd have you know um, the Briscoes would be there. You'd yes. Have the Funk Brothers would be you know uh, you know Dory, Dory Funk and uh, and then Terry Funk would be there. You'd have Harley Race there. Uh, Andre the Giant would come frequently, and as as you get into the later seventies, early eighties, that's happening less and less. And yeah, I think that had to have been a, uh, a bit of a break, kind of a breaking point in the relationship. Um, it was it in eighty two? Did Stu like formally? Um, here's again something you could maybe teach me. Is that did he formally cut ties with NWA at
0: that time? For my, from my For my understanding, yeah, eighty two is when uh, when he when he withdrew his NWA membership. And then that just makes sense and then, and then I, decided I, to just. I'll never forget
7: this. Um, I was, you know, I was a kid watching the show, loving it. At eighty-two, the summer, of eighty-two or eighty-three, he brought in Nick Bockwinkel, and even then, as you know, I was very aware. Nick Bockwinkel is not part of the NWA. This is an AWA champion. So yes. The fact that he brought in Nick Bockwinkel there, that was a big red flag. Which is
0: interesting of... too, because now that we're tying back to Vern Gagne, because. It... Yeah, if people don't don't realize when Vern split from the NWA, formed the AWA, right? So we, we talked about their relationship, whatever it was in you know the late '40s, early '50s. Fast forward thirty years, Vern's champion is is touring Calgary. It's incredible.
7: Yeah, I think I th- in some ways uh, because maybe uh, being the redheaded stepchild of the NWA, which maybe he was. I think that also gave Stu maybe a little bit of freedom, though, as well. Because, for example, like he would always like he brought in Andre the Giant, and under the, as far as I know, Andre the Giant worked under contract with the McMahon family.
0: In, yeah, he, he and, was and, under he contract with early the WWWF at that point. Yeah, he was under contract with the WWF at that point. Yeah.
7: However, I guess I guess they did contract it. Like you know, Andre certainly showed up in NWA territories then, not just Stu's. So maybe. That was sort of a, just because Andre the Giant was such an attraction, the WWF would perhaps contract him out to get the other territories. That makes sense to me, I guess. If, but if I'm not I, mistaken, I that a certain flexibility maybe that other sort of sort of bigger NWA territories might not have had.
0: Yeah, and it, the other thing about Andre is, I want to say at that point, the WWF was still a part of the NWA. I could right. be wrong. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe that had ended at that point. But even still, like Stu's as as getting dates on him because I, I, and see, this is where my my WWF knowledge is not where it needs to be. But if if I'm not mistaken, it was something where you could buy dates on Andre through the office, so you would you would get um, a list of weeks of availability. Um, so whether it was uh, Japan asking, or whether it was whether it was Stampede asking, whatever. You had these blocks of sense. dates, and you would you would pay whatever the fee was for that that entire set, and he would come out and do and do yeah. the program.
7: Yeah, that makes sense. But I mean, the, the big one for me was when when, when Bachwinkle showed up, and it was a big deal. They for weeks they were promoting Bachwinkle, and uh, I only knew Bachwinkle at that time as a kid, just from the magazines, you know. So I was just so excited that Nick Bachwinkle was coming, and, and uh, yeah, he fought David Schultz, and I think he fought maybe Bret Hart, and you know, they but they really did bring in you know promote the coming of Nick Bockwinkel and yeah you know, AWA guys. So yeah, and that was after a dearth of, of champions coming because I'm not sure when the last time Race came, but I think I think there it had been a few years. So Bye. and Race had a great relationship with Stu. Race actually, I think Race uh, because had so much respect for Stu, he would. Go a little over and above. They like at one point there when you know he'd go. He'd actually do the entire Stampede tour, like he'd go to Saskatoon and you know all the all the little towns in between, sort of thing. Uh, and uh, if there's one story I think maybe Bret Hart tells it in his book. Uh, there's one story about how. You know, they they went to some town, little town, and they, they actually the the ring never showed up. So there was some something, some mishap, and the ring never showed up. So they had to actually just wrestle on a, on a gym mat. <laughs>
0: yes, I do remember that story.
7: Yeah, and race was willing. He was the world champion at that time. Like uh, you know, a lot of guys would have just said like you know, say it was a WWF thing. There's no way Hulk Hogan's wrestling. On no, a gym no, mat. no, 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 doesn't race work for me,
0: brother. To,
7: yeah, yeah, no, no, Race, and Race probably wouldn't have done it for just anybody either, but he had such respect for Stu that he was willing to do that.
0: I, just I, about Harley Race, I uh, want to say 79 was the last time that he would have been there as a champion, although I'm sure he made dates after, like, just, uh, no, obviously not with the NWA title.
7: Yeah, he did, and, he even, and, and at one point there, there was a cross-promotional show with... Uh, <clears throat> With the WWF, this goes into the late '80s, and he showed up as the King Harley Race. Then. Yes, that's right. So, so yeah. yeah, he had come back, but in the in the Stampede Wrestling as as you know, territory days in the in, he was yeah, it was '79. It was as late as '79. I wasn't. I was. I wouldn't have thought that, but okay, yeah, that makes sense actually.
0: So you were talking earlier about uh, the the ups and the big ups and big downs for uh, Stampede Wrestling for Stu Hart <clears throat> as well. Uh, here's a date. I'm going to tell you the date and, uh, I want to get your reaction. December 2nd, 1980. Yeah, I can see by your, you can't see, uh, the video obviously on the podcast portion, but as soon as I I said the date, his, his face lit up, uh, December 2nd, 1983 was probably the most infamous day in, in, uh, Calgary Stampede or Stampede Wrestling history.
7: It was an amazing time. I remember watching it as a kid and it was uh it, it's it's essentially the wrestling version of uh you know, Orson welles War of the Worlds. If you're if you're you know yes. if the audience there is familiar with War of the Worlds, it's just this, this fiction that's perpetrated on uh you know, on the public that's so realistic that everybody buys it and they think it's real and it creates this hysteria. This is what happened in, in December second, uh 1983, yeah. So, I, I can, um, basically, this was the, the this is this was something that Bruce Hart promoted. Actually, um, this is a, a concept Bruce had come up with. Uh, the, the the killer, fearsome, terrifying monster heel of that time, that early '80s period in, in uh, Stampede Wrestling was, was Bad News Allen. He was just terrifying. He he torn through the Dynamite Kid. He torn through Bret Hart. Um, he had this big, intimidating, loud, uh, angry presence when he would be on TV. Um, you know, he was just a terrifying heel of his day. Uh, and th- and they had the concept to bring in the terrifying heel of yesteryear, which was Archie the Stomper Goldie, who was like just this huge heel of the late 60s and early 70s in the Stampede, uh, and bring him in and pit them against each other. It was sort of like it was going to be this King Kong versus Godzilla situation. Uh but at first, they, they brought them in as a team, they brought them in as this tag team, and the whole conceit was that uh, Archie DeStomper was going to bring his kid with him, his young green kid, Jeff Goldie, it wasn't really his kid, but they brought in this K-P, wrestler. Kayfabe,
0: uh, yeah. kid, yeah.
7: Yeah, Kayfabe, they brought in this guy that was supposedly the son of Jeff, of Archie DeStomper Goldie, Jeff Goldie, who he's, he's breaking his son Jeff into the business, and he's going to team up with Bad News Allen. And, uh so so they it was a legend it was an amazing match and that bad news island had such heat. the crowd hated him they were so they were terrified of him they hated him uh and so so it was i believe it was bret hart davy boy smith and uh this japanese wrestler who they were passing off as a as a you know a first nations wrestler was uh, sunny, two, sunny
0: rivers. two rivers yes
7: yeah yeah he was good and uh I used to love watching him, and so there was those three against, uh, you know, Archie the Stomper, Jeff Goldie, and uh, Bad, Bad News Allen. At one point in the match, uh, Bad News Allen turns on Archie the Stomper, it, you know, he does the heel turn, betrays him, uh, stabs him in the back, essentially, uh, another wrestler, Terry Brown, comes in, and the, the one of the managers, Wakamatsu, and they, they wind up tying Archie the Stomper up in the corner, essentially, knocking <clears throat> him out, tying him up, and Archie the Stomper takes Jeff Goldie out into the out, you know, throws him out of the ring. Pile drives him on on the concrete in front of the ring, uh, and the crowd goes and supposedly cripples him. That was the whole thing. They, you know, he's yes, stack. they did an
0: ambulance he's, he's, angle out of this.
7: Yeah, the, the ambulance comes in. They broke his neck. The crowd and it, shit, it, was, it was such an amazing thing the way they pulled it off. But the crowd went absolutely bananas. You can see a bit of it on YouTube. Uh, there was there was actually a riot. Um, <clears throat> some old old man hit Bad News Allen with his cane and Allen actually grabbed him the throat <laughs> and throttled him and he was don't you touch me, you old bastard, you know? And uh, it was this crazy thing. The crowd went absolutely nuts. Um, <clears throat> and the hearts, they never clued, for, Here's here was a, a big way they went wrong. They never clued uh, Ed Whalen, the announcer, in on this. And Ed Whalen often headbutted with the hearts and fought with the hearts because he wanted wrestling to be family entertainment. When it got too violent he threatened to walk on many occasions and he would always edit the violent stuff off tv and he you know really fight a lot with bruce hart about this kind of stuff um so anyway there's this there's there's a riot uh in in the in the victoria pavilion uh archie you know bad news allen comes out and does this terrifying promo about you know he's taunting the stalker i crippled your kid i helped them die it was it was it was just riveting um and the crowd, as I say, the crowd's just going bananas. And then uh, at the end of it, uh, you know, everybody's cleared out. And just the Stomper comes in there. It's Archie Stomper and Ed Whalen. A uh, little spotlight on the ring. The whole Victoria Pavilion's dark. They're the only two guys there in the Victoria Pavilion. And Stomper's also this loud, intimidating, you know, psychopath on the mic usually. But this time he's, he's somber he's, you know, he's sad, he's expressing regret that he brought his son into this horrible wrestling business, now his son's a cripple, and all this, and then at the end, he, he vows revenge on Bad News Allen, and it was such an amazing scenario, it, it's it, one of the greatest wrestling moments of all time, that nobody else outside of you know, Stampede Wrestling knows about, the, the, the Stu's territory knows about, but it was an incredible moment, uh, and Ed Whalen. This is the, 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 the kicker the kicker here at the end of it, you know Ed Whalen says uh, I can't be a part of this anymore. He tells the audience he quits he quits right there on the, on the air and kind of hangs his mic over the over the side over the over the ropes and he leaves. And Ed, Ed Whalen is like I say, he's the star of the show and because Ed did that as well, everybody buys what what had happened. Uh, the media went nuts. Like the, med- you know, the media started attacking Stampede Wrestling. It's gotten too violent. Wrestling's got to be stopped. Um, the boxing and re- Calgary Boxing and Wrestling Commission, who stews often over the years, has been at, you know, at, at odds with for violence and stuff. They, uh, they take away his license, so he can't operate Calgary shows for a while. Um, <clears throat> I think it affects his TV license at one point there, so he starts having there's a There's a, a First Nations Reserve outside of Calgary, Uh, Susina so he starts he has to do a couple matches there so what should have been this amazing moment for Stampede Wrestling becomes that Bad News Allen gets fined Stu gets fined um so what's what and then they're getting attacked by the media Helen Hart's you know begging Stu like Stu let's get out of this business yeah she's been she's been begging for years but now she really steps it up it's like Stu we need to get out of this business this is this is terrible so you know he's 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 losing money he's under all this pressure uh, and this is when this leads to the it, so it, it, at, a, at a time when they should have been really strong they're, they're now weakened and that's exactly around the time that Vince McMahon comes knocking on the door that's when he's expanding the WWF and you know, mowing over all the other territories and taking over people's TV spots and poaching their stars and everything and here he comes knocking on Stampede Wrestling's door and he wants to do the same and he's, you know, he's
0: offering Stu to buy out the territory So before
7: before we get, the weekend he's willing at this time to do it.
0: So I and this is something that I'm really interested to get your take on is is the quote unquote purchase by the WWF. But before we get there, I just want to or or reiterate or or you know really hammer down the the, like December second, 1983 could have. Set that entire uh, territory, the Stampede Wrestling, off for years and years and years. They they could have they could have built uh, how many different programs? Well, they were building how many different programs based off this angle. And you know, two oversights: one, not queuing an Ed Whalen, and then there was unfortunately a fan, I believe, was uh, was trampled in the in the riot as well. So that yeah, so so there so so this amazing feat that they pull off of you know keeping it under wraps and, and and the heat from the crowd and just how everything transpired for for all of it to really be the thing that caused the downfall of stampede wrestling is is incredible and it's again one of those things that if you if you didn't know or didn't hear about it it's you know you you, you hear about it nowadays and it's well fans don't get that crazy like fans nowadays don't get that crazy it's hard to fathom right yes and no if you've ever seen a a Canadian fan base at whether it's the NHL game or a CFL game or whatever right (laughs) a a goddamn kids soccer game (laughs) Uh, we have a propensity for being a little bit mm, involved in the in the happenings uh, if you will so, a hundred percent. If if you're seeing, essentially, what you think is a guy getting murdered with a pile driver on a concrete floor, and he's getting taken out by on a stretcher, and this is in a territory Stampede Wrestling where it was very real, right? There was there was there was very little theatrics to uh, to the wrestling itself.
7: No, especially with a guy like the bad news Allen matches were so intense. So the way he would just destroy people, and uh, the Dynamite Kid was another. Like he was such an incredible performer, and he would make everything just look like like a cartoon, like a cartoon come to life. so he would fly across the ring, you know, whether he's getting whether he's flying off the turnbuckle onto somebody, or whether somebody's you know hit him and he goes flying off like like he's just been shot to the moon. Like he was, he was, it was very. But it, but it looked
0: realistic. It didn't look theatrical. It looked like, it looked like a real brawl. No. The, Davey, or, well, Davey Boy too as well, but Dynamite Kid doing flips is, is not the flips that uh, people are used to seeing nowadays in wrestling. That's for sure. No. So, no. Yeah. Uh, WWF comes in. Obviously, Stu is at a low point financially, physically, emotionally... And he he makes the decision to, to and I use this phrase quote unquote sell to the WWF.
7: Yeah, because it wasn't much of a sell.
0: Yes. Okay. So there's been a, a a ton of debate back and forth. Was it a sale? Was it not a sale? Was there money exchanged? Uh, what what have you been able to determine?
7: The way I understand it, it was it was a, he was going to buy Vince offered to buy the territory for a million dollars. A few caveats: he would take he would take some of Stu's top stars with him to the WWF, uh, you know, the Brett's uh, Jim Neidhart, and the British Bulldogs, and then, you know, he also had his spot. and later got Bad News Allen and people like that. Um, and it, but, but the deal was, the financial deal was that it was going to be a million dollars, $100,000 a year for 10 years, uh, and then Stu would have a piece of the gate. He would get a percentage of the gate in Calgary and Edmonton shows, as I understand it. Um, and whether that first $100,000 exchanged hands that I'm not clear about that. Actually, I imagine it probably did, but, but uh, in terms of basically Vince reneged on the deal because Calgary fans were so passionate about stampede wrestling and they were actually appalled by the coming of the WWF and the first WWF shows in Calgary were, you know, were poorly attended and, and very poorly received because suddenly, you know, these, these fans that grew up with stampede wrestling, they're suddenly watching, you know, suddenly Bret Hart's showing up as as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a heel all of a sudden. He had been this great, one of the great golden, you know, baby faces. Suddenly he's showing up as a heel. And then, and then some of the, the you know, lower card guys that were still beloved in Stampede Wrestling, like the Leo Burks and the Mr. Hedos and people like that, suddenly they're showing up on the bottom of the card just getting squashed by the WWF yeah. guys. And, uh, yeah, they, they hated it. The, the Calgary fans really hated it and resisted it at first. And so, and suddenly Vince, this, what he thought was this golden territory didn't look so golden to him anymore. And so he said to Stu, I'm, I'm not paying the rest of this. I'm, you know, I'm not, the deal's off. And so, but at that point there, Stu had given up his TV, he, he had given up the TV show and, you know, turned over. you know, WWF had the, had the TV spots. Uh, you know, and he, he lost his top guys. So he had to, he he, so in 85, he decided he, you know, with pressure. I think Bruce was really the one driving it, but Bruce wanted to start up Stampede Wrestling again. But uh, so they started it up again. And I, I think Stu was torn about it. I think Stu wanted to be back in the wrestling business, uh, but he was getting a little old and he didn't, he didn't, maybe, he, he didn't, he, you know, he, and he had, always had Helen on him saying, you know, don't, please don't go back into this, you know. But then he had Bruce saying to him, we got to get back into this business, you know, so, so anyways, he, he gets back in in 85, and, and he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's torn about it, I think he wanted to be there, but he didn't want to be there, if that, if that makes sense,
0: I think um, it's, it, and maybe I'm totally speaking off base here, but it might have been one of those situations where, you know, he made the sale, he was, you know, emotionally divested of it now, right, now, so he's, he's out of the game. And then when you're out, when you're out of something totally like that, when you, when, you know, your time's up, you're, you're retired, you're finished, you're going to move on to the next chapter, whatever that might be. It's hard to, you know, kind of throw yourself back. And especially if Helen's not with them on it, it's man, That couldn't have been easy.
7: No, it really wasn't. I think it was tough on him. And then, and then also, you know, Bruce was sort of running, steering it into the, steering it into the future there. And Stu didn't like the way Bruce was steering it into the future. He thought, like a lot, he, he didn't. He thought a lot of Bruce's ideas were too crackpotish, and he thought that Bruce had Bruce had some great ideas. A lot of people, you know, kind of trap on Bruce, and Bruce did do, you know, Bruce all Bruce ideas weren't gold, but he had some. He was really essential to he he, he brought this sort of crazy sensibility to Stampede Wrestling in the late seventies uh, and right through the eighties that that I think made Stampede Wrestling really stand out. Um, but Stu didn't like a lot of those ideas. And, 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 you know, Stu was still really buddy with Ed Whalen, uh, who did come back to the show, by the way. Ed Whalen still wanted it to be family family stuff, and he didn't want the the violence. And Stu backed Ed Whalen on that for the most part, and Bruce was the one always pushing for the violence, pushing for the... Stu hated nut shots. He, Bruce loved uh, guys getting hit in the nuts. Yeah, It was one of his things he loved to do, and Stu hated it. So that was one of the things, he was always mad about Bruce and those nut shots and the violence uh, and just some of the weird, so you know some of the kind of show crazier sort of theme, ideas that Bruce came up with, Stu didn't always buy into that stuff, so you know so that's another thing too, he was sort of half in and half out and then and he's just battling with Bruce over the way it was going to go and not loving the way Bruce was steering the ship, so.
0: So when when they finally shut, well, they never finally, finally shut it down, but I, I- in the in the late '80s, that would have been '88, '89 into '90, mm. is when I think that uh, that they shut it down finally. But uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, Stu was still training out of the dungeon at that point, correct?
7: A little bit. Like he would. I don't think he was there all the time or anything like that. I think it was mostly the brothers that were doing it at that time: Keith, Bruce, Ross. Um, but yeah, Stu. Would, but people would be well into the. I mean a couple of years before Stu died there's stories people of, of you know people being down in the dungeon and Stu would come down there and you know stretch him and show he loved to be an old guy and being underestimated by people and then showing him that he still had it and
0: well and you know, I'm trying to think here he what
7: stretched me once and I'm, I'm glad and, I, and I'm glad I didn't uh, take him up on it
0: It's funny you say that because I've, <laughs> I've heard uh, like guys like Jim Ross or whatever talk about you know they're they're at the hard house for whatever reason uh there to grab grab bread or talk business or whatever and there'd be stew in the corner a hey, uh, you want to go in the dungeon it
7: just the time he offered to do it to me the weirdest it sounds weird and, and it but it, but it was uh it was the day I was there for the death of one heart like I was there in the hard house and I met stew and he and, we were, and I got a, you know, I got, I talked to him about Owen and stuff, and I got, you know, I got my quotes from him, and, you know, he was obviously shattered and everything, but, you know, he was also hospitable, and, uh, you know, he, I was from Saskatoon, he was from, Stu grew up, was born right outside of Saskatoon, so he had ties with Saskatoon, um, you know, and Whalen was a Saskatoon boy and stuff, so he, you know, he liked that I was from Saskatoon, and And, uh, you know, he kind of, I don't know, half jokingly or he, he, you know, offered to take me down into the dungeon and show me a few things. And I uh, I
4: was
7: like, no, it's okay, It's okay. Um, I'm here. I'm just here to work. I'm just a reporter here to work. And I think I I think I think it was just instinctual for him. And I think maybe he was he was in such pain that day that it might have been just like a bit of a relief to. Take somebody down into the dungeon and stretch him. I think that was his happy place, you know. And uh, yeah, that sounds odd on the day, the day after his son had died. But that's that's what uh, that's that's what he said to me.
0: <laughs> it's funny you, you mentioned that. Like, oh, what year did uh, Wrestling with Shadows come out? Was that ninety
7: eight? I think Wrestling with Shadows, was, if I'm not mistaken, was ninety seven. I might be wrong.
0: Okay. But, well, yeah.
7: yeah.
0: Well, there was most of the film was done in ninety seven. Uh, yeah, for sure, right, and I'll I'll never forget the videos of Stu stretching uh, guys in the basement, and yeah. so y- you figure that's only three years, you know, before you're meeting him, and he's still uh, ready to go in the dungeon. It's yeah, man,
7: just yeah, it was it was it was something.
0: So as you were writing the book, and as you were getting to know the family, um. And know Stu as well. What was your sense of him as maybe not not a personality, but what was your sense of what he thought of uh, his perception in, in, uh, in society?
7: I don't know if he was so aware of, of the impact. Like, there, if you go to the Glenville Museum in Calgary right now, there's a display of uh, dedicated to Stu Hart. You know, a picture of him, and you know the old uh, uh, North American title belt. Um, I don't know. So it's like this Mavericks. It's called Mavericks, and it's a display of the hundred most influential people in Calgary history. Okay. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I knew he. I I think he had some sense that he was. You know, he was. He had made an impact, and he was a name. He was a known commodity and a known person in Calgary. But I don't think. I don't know, he seemed like a humble guy, and I don't think he would have seen himself being, you know, in a Mavericks display with the, the most influential Calgarians of all, of all time.
0: And the, uh, the Hart House still stands today, as correct?
7: It does. I just visited it recently, just, for, just from the outside. Like, it's not owned by the Hearts anymore. No, so it, it, so... It's, it's terrible that it's not, but it's owned by somebody else. Uh, so the outside looks exactly like it always looked. So you go up there and drive up to it and it's, it's you know, it's something to see. But on the inside, uh, from what I'm told, it's very different now. They've, you know, they had, because it's a heritage home, it's, they had to maintain the facade, but yes. the inside they could do with it whatever. So I don't know if it's offices now or if if there's just a family there. I'm not exactly sure.
0: Yeah. I was, um, I was just going to ask because inside. of the heritage, uh, because of the heritage designation, what that meant for what, what's preserved and what can be, you know, changed or whatever.
7: Yeah. Yeah, I was there, I was there, I know, and that's another thing that tore up the Hart family, too, like, you know, after Owen died, I mean, they they were always, the Hart family, the 12 kids, and, you know, they all, they all, and, you know, they're in this sort of showbiz world, and they all have some aspirations to get into the wrestling business, or in some way or another, um, or they all wound up part of the wrestling business in some way or another, uh, and so, so, you know, And just any family with twelve kids, I think there's a lot of backbiting and a lot of scrapping and
4: fighting. (laughs) scrappy
7: family like the Hart family, so they always had sort of a, you know, you know, there was little, you know, kind of cliques, cliques within the family and stuff, and you know, uh, you know, certain brothers and sisters not getting along and stuff. Uh, But then, of course, after Owen died, this it absolutely tears tears them apart because some people butt back the suing of, of, of Vince McMahon and the WWF and some were against it uh, and it, you know and things got very very ugly uh, and it, t- you know, it tore the family apart um, and then and then you know and these uh, these rivalries continue like because they all fought about what to do with the house some people thought that the Hart family should keep it and some thought they should turn it into a museum of some yeah. sort and then others thought no we gotta unload this thing and so yeah so even then uh, when would that sale have been around 2005 or something? I think maybe, maybe not, maybe, but maybe not that early, but anyway, I know that they were still, you know, battling over it and stuff even then.
0: So uh, obviously after uh, Owen's passing, um, just can you speak to just this, I don't know if state is the correct way to phrase it, but just what was Stu's kind of outlook on not not wrestling but the family aspect because I, I i keep wanting to cue in on that because i think it's so interesting just what was what was his biggest if you know i'm not sure if you do his biggest uh frustration or regret or complication with with the family what was his what was the big stumbling block for him
7: like in in the when they were when the lawsuit was happening against so Matt
0: even after the lawsuit just was he was was he uh, a big proponent of trying to get the family back together was he trying to yes, get everybody I think on so. the same and, and
7: I think he was absolutely him and Helen were both absolutely broken-hearted that the family you know the, that their family had been torn apart to that to that extreme to that degree yeah.
0: so as we uh, move on with the program uh, what if you could name like a top three lasting moments or lasting memories of Stu hart uh either your interaction with him or something that you would have witnessed in calgary stampede if you had a top three what would they be
7: Hmm. it's so i didn't i mean when i was growing up and watching it watching it you know live in real time sort of thing Stu was already sort of the old guy the patriarch that was sort of off in the off in the background, right? So, so I didn't see a lot of his greatest matches, uh, or, or just watched him later in tapes and stuff like that. So, so it's it, it's a little hard for me, but I would say, I would say, like my top three Stu Hart sort of moments that sum him up: the stuff in the dungeon, the stuff, you know the people he trained in the dungeon and the people he tortured in the dungeons and the horror stories that come out of the dungeon. I'd say that. Um, I'd say the battles that he had with Archie Stomper. Were absolutely epic. Archie the Stomper Goldie was a guy that he was his greatest prodigy, perhaps in the dungeon that he trained from scratch and brought him up there. And then they went on to have these amazing battles. Um, and I guess just just being this this patriarch and this family that 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 uh, you know that went on to be so influential in, in wrestling history. And you know, I mean, Bret Bret Hart's one of the most famous wrestlers. To the uh, one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, and you know, and so and so is Owen, and Owen's one of the greatest tragedies of all time as well. And just the fact that he spawned this, you know, and he, and just the fact, just that, just the, for me, the fact that he's the creator of this this amazing thing that I grew up with it means so much to me, and so much to so many people that I grew, you know, for generations in, in Western Canada, especially. Um, Bill, that's my like top. That's Stu for me. That's the thing that means most to me about Stu Hart. I don't know if that's a good answer for you because I don't have a lot of specific matches to tell you about or anything like that. And I know that he had some great great moments in the ring, but they were sort of before my time, a lot of them. So
0: No, that's what I wanted to hit on. It's, it's not the matches, it's the man. Right? Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's, again, the, the interesting dichotomy between Stu Hart, wrestling promoter, Stu Hart, the father, Stu Hart, the family man. And I find it, I find it just fascinating, just that you know. Obviously, the dungeon is is one that most people are going to bring to, but then your other ones are, you know, about the man behind everything. And I just, I think yeah. that's very apropos.
7: Very much so, and also the, he he did a lot for charity whenever, and you know, he was often not, he was often struggling himself, but he did. He's known for some of the a lot of the charities uh, thing initiatives he would support in Calgary as well. So that's something you really have to remember him for. I just also think of him as this inspiring guy in the way that he built himself up from nothing. Like, he grew up uh, just dirt poor, just dirt poor. Yeah, poor the poorest
0: of poor, yeah. His
7: father was locked in a land dispute. Uh, like, when he was a kid, a young boy, Stu lived in a tent. Outside of a property that his father felt he had claimed to. He lived he lived in his tent like a, in a frozen Canadian prairie. We're talking minus thirty, minus forty weather here. He lived in a tent with his two sisters and his mom and dad. And he came from that. He lived that way for two years. Like it's, it's unfathomable. I don't know how you survive that, you know. And it just made he but he was such he was so strong that he did survive it. And then the fact that he comes from that and just builds himself up to this. To this level where he's this you know legendary figure that's something that that really sticks out for me for Stu Hart too
0: so as we wrap up this segment of the program uh Heath where can people uh, get in touch with you
7: uh I, well, I'm on, I'm on, I'm fan heathen on Twitter. I mean, I'm pretty much out of the journalism business at the moment. I mean, I've thought about cooking up another book and doing some magazine stories, but at the moment, I'm the father of four, and so I'm not. Uh,
0: Your time is a, a premium
7: yeah I'm sort of I'm sort of past that phase of my life at the moment but I not that I, I'm not writing it off that I'll never get back into the journalism world or the book writing world or anything like that but um yeah Van heathen on twitter I guess and and i the main thing is i I want everybody to buy my book I think that it's uh uh, I didn't write it just for wrestling fans. I, I, I it's a really uh, epic, tragic sort of story. I, I wrote it like, in a, I had a cinematic vision for it. And, uh, I, 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 always wanted it to be a crossover sort of book, like the way the wrestler movie was a crossover. Yes. To, you didn't have to be a wrestling fan to like that movie. Um, that's sort of what I wanted it to be. You know, I wanted I wanted it to be something that wrestling fans would love and especially people that grew up with stampede wrestling because I knew it would, you know, tug at their heartstrings, but I, but I wanted it to be more of a, a, a crossover hit too. I wanted people to, because it's just a family, it's, it's a tragedy and it's a family story. Um, uh, it, you know, it's a f- epic family tragedy it's, and, uh, and so yeah, yeah Amazon, uh, dot com, and, uh, uh, you know, and Amazon, you can, you can still buy it. So yeah.
0: Pain and Passion. Find,
7: find my book. <laughs>
0: yes, Pain and Passion: The History of Stampede Wrestling. Uh, we're gonna have more on that book a little bit later as well. But uh, until then, uh, Heath, thank you very much for your time this evening. I, I'm sorry for taking up an exponential amount of your time. I have four kids, I got two myself, <laughs> and they're they are a handful. So I very much appreciate having you on the program.
7: Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for your interest. It was a great, great, uh, great chat with you.
0: Well, hopefully uh, we'll have something to pique your interest and get you on the program in the in the near future. But until then, uh, thank you very much for joining the program tonight. Thank you. Before we head to the finish of this evening's program, we're going to play some classic audio once again from Stampede Wrestling. Now, this audio is from the riot that we talked about earlier in the program with Heath and myself, the one where Bad News Allen turns on Archie the Goldie Stomper. Right now, you're going to hear Ed Whalen the often opinionated, often uh, involved Ed Whalen, essentially go silent. Now, this is directly related to what we were talking about earlier in the program, that Ed Whalen had no foreknowledge that this was going to happen. You're going to hear the crowd essentially go silent because they have no idea what they're witnessing. It's such a shock to everybody involved, Ed Whalen, the fans, even some of the boys, because nobody was clued in to what was actually happening uh, in the ring that evening. But you're going you're gonna to hear the turn, You're going to hear Ed Whelan essentially go silent. And then you're going to hear the interview with Bad News Allen after where you want to talk about heat in a building. Oh boy, you're going to hear it in this one. So we're going to get into this classic audio. And then we're going to head to the end of the program on the other side of it.
5: and Bad News Allen comes in. He hit the stopper. Bad News Allen hit the stopper. They got the stopper jammed in this quarter. Kerry Brown has got him wrapped up, and Bad News Allen is going against the stopper. Bad News Island now takes a run at young Jeff Goldie. Going after Jeff Goldie, flings him out of there. Kerry Brown
4: joins him in front of the ring. Busy trying with a crowd. I've never seen anything
5: like that. Let me tell you something. Archer, the stopper Goldie, I've been playing in this for a long time. You've been right in your mouth that you wanted my belt. You wanted the championship from me. But you thought tagging up with me was going to make me to forget the vendetta I had for you. Put the camera over there and take a look at this man. Take a look man. at him. Take a look, look at his son there. I broke his neck. I crippled him. I hope the son of God dies.
0: As we begin to wrap up the program this evening, there's just a few things I wanted to touch on about Stu Hart before we kind of close out this podcast this evening. Now, there is no way that I would be able to go into complete granular detail about Stu Hart the man, Stu Hart the promoter, Stu Hart the family man, etc. It it would be a 20-hour podcast for sure at least, but... At the very least, I'm very proud of the guests that I had on and of the research that we did to kind of give everybody a snapshot, a closer look at Stu Hart, the man, Stu Hart the promoter. I hope that we gave you guys all some valuable information that you never knew. And really what I wanted this to be is kind of a jumping off point for you, the listener, to take the time to research the man, Stu Hart, to research uh, Calgary Stampede Wrestling, and more importantly... Uh, to kind of immerse yourself in the the history of Western Canadian wrestling. And like I said previously in the program, no better way to do that than the book written by the aforementioned uh, Heath McCoy, which you can find uh, the link to on tinyurl.com slash grapplingwithcanada. Uh, Before I get out of here tonight, I just want to highlight uh, Stu Hart's accomplishments and championships, and then we're going to unfortunately talk about the end of his life now. That's uh, a subject nobody likes to talk about, but as Great Man once said, father time does no jobs. But before we get into that, we're going to talk about his championships and accomplishments. So in amateur wrestling, he won the Edmonton City Middleweight Championship in 1930, won the Alberta Provincial Championship in 1930. Won the Western Canada Championship and the Canadian National Wrestling Championships in 1939. Won the Dominion Welterweight Championship in 1937 and the Dominion Light Heavyweight Championship in 1940. He won the Welterweight Championship from the Amateur Athletic Union of Canada in 1937. He went into the Alberta Sports Hall of Fame. He was inducted in the Class of 1980 and also went into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame Class of 2008. Now, in terms of just professional wrestling itself, uh, he was inducted in the Canadian Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, the Class of 1980. He was inducted in the Cauliflower Alley Club in 2001. He was inducted in the Luthes Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame in the Class of 2008. And in terms of championships that he won, uh, he won the NWA Northwest Tag Team Championship twice with Pat Meehan and Luigi Macera. He was inducted in the Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame, the class of 2014. He was inducted in the Stampede Wrestling Hall of Fame, the class of 1995. In WWE, he was inducted in their Hall of Fame in 2010. Uh, He was inducted in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, Hall of Fame class of 1996. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm sure somebody will on Twitter. You can send your hate tweets to at six underscore podcast. But anyways, I'm sure that he was part of the inaugural class of the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Just shows what an incredible reach that he had that, uh, that an American news writer like Dave Meltzer would take the time to induct him in the first ever class of the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Uh, he was also inducted as well, lastly, in the Prairie Alliance uh, Wrestling Hall of Fame. In terms of recognitions, he was a recipient of the Order of Canada in November 15, 2000. Now, that's the highest, highest, highest honor that any civilian could ever be bestowed upon in Canada in terms of an award. Uh, just a tremendous legacy a tremendous honor for Stu and I'm sure that he you know with my conversation with Heath he's very humble I'm sure that he kind of you know downplayed it or whatever but my god it must have been such a thrill for him to to receive that uh, that recognition from Canada just uh, of the absolute importance that he had to the fabric of this our country now unfortunately we have to talk about the uh, way that his life ended so uh, in 2003, he was admitted with an elbow infection. Uh, he also developed pneumonia as part of his hospital stay. Whether or not it was part of the I shouldn't say that. But it, it was pneumonia that he got as a result of an elbow infection. Uh, he also suffered from diabetes and arthritis. Uh, unfortunately, he also suffered a stroke during his hospital day and passed away on October 16th of 2003. He was 88 years old at the time. What a tremendous life. What a tremendous man. What a tremendous part of Canadian history. Not just wrestling, but Canadian history. And I can't overstate that enough. For myself, the legacy of Stu Hart is somebody who persevered through enormous personal struggles somebody who strived very hard to be a very good family man and provide for his family tried to be a good father to 12 children, tried to be a good husband to his wife and to me that's, that's my takeaway from it forget the wrestling side of it forget what he did for Stampede forget what he did for Western Canadian Wrestling forget what he did for the NWA to me Stu Hart, in my opinion, is one of the greatest figures in Canadian history because of who he was as a person. That's my opinion. I hope that everybody can take their own perspectives and their own ideas away from this con- these conversations that I had with the guests on this program tonight. As we start to wrap up the program this evening, I just want to encourage everybody once again, to visit our website, tinyurl.com slash grapplingwithcanada. Once again, I know I've shielded it about 50,000 times on the program tonight, but I can't say it enough. You are doing yourself a disservice if you do not go out and get Pain and Passion, written by Heath McCoy on Stampede Wrestling. It's just, it's the most incredible read. If you think that listening to this program and you hear things like the car accident that he had or his time in the Navy or you know the riot of Stampede Wrestling or all that if you think that all that sounds too fantastical to be true just you 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 are not sure what you're in for when you get to read that book so highly encourage everybody to go check that out uh, once again I want to thank all of the guests that I had on the program tonight uh, Ashley Rose Nova Danny Duggan the hot shot if you will and of course Heath McCoy once again you can find us at tinyurl.com/grapplingwithcanada on there as well I didn't mention this yet we have our Patreon page patreon.com/grapplingwithcanada there's a few tiers on there uh, if you are able and willing to help out the show that'd be very much appreciated once again you can also find us on YouTube using that wonderful YouTube search bar grappling with canada Or you can use the direct search YouTube.com slash C slash Six Sided Podcast. And we're also marching our way to a 1,000 subscribers on YouTube. And when we hit that mark, I have a very special prize pack for one lucky winner, which will include a copy of Pain and Passion, the book written by Heath McCoy that I've been plugging and (laughs) chilling on this program. Uh, You can also interact with me on Twitter at Six Underscore Podcasts. Uh, Once again, for all my guests, uh, thank you all very much for tuning into the program tonight. Uh, Without you, theres I'm not going to say there's not a point to doing this, because the point of doing this is to talk about the history of Canadian professional wrestling, because if we don't talk about it, if we don't investigate it, if we don't research it, if we don't look into it, unfortunately it goes by the wayside, and I, for one, refuse to let that happen, so... On behalf of all of my guests, for myself, the taxman, I will leave you as I used to leave everyone on the previous Six sided Podcast program. Take care of yourselves and each other. Happy 2021, everyone, and we'll catch you on next month's episode.